and chair staff is good. All right. Welcome to the City of Sacramento City Council's Law and Legislation Committee meeting. Will the clerk please call the roll to establish a quorum? Thank you, Chair. Councilmember Guerra? Here. Councilmember Jennings? Here. Councilmember Kaplan? Here. Chair Valenzuela? I am here. And Councilmember Kaplan, will you lead us in the land acknowledgement and pledge of allegiance? Absolutely. Everyone, please rise. Please rise for the opening acknowledgments in honor of Sacramento's indigenous people and tribal lands. To the original people of this land, the Nisanon people, the Southern Maidu, the Valley and Plains Miwok, the Putwin Wintun people, and the people of the Wilton Rancheria, Sacramento's only federally recognized tribe. May we acknowledge and honor the native people who came before us and still walk beside us today on these ancestral lands by choosing to gather together today in the active practice of acknowledgement and appreciation for Sacramento's indigenous people's history, contributions, and lives. Thank you. Please stay standing for the pledge. Pledge. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you, everyone. You may be seated. Well, we are just going to keep trying to break records for the longest law and ledge agendas ever um, in the history of this council. So I hope folks will bear with us and take breaks when they need to. Um, to start us off, uh, first I want to make sure members of the public know that there are slips in the back. If you'd like to register to get public comment, you can return them to the clerk up here in the front of the room. And with that, we will start with our consent calendar, items one and two. Do any of my colleagues have questions or comments on the consent? Move consent. Move. Second. And seconded, do we have any public comment, Madam Clerk? We have no public comment. Thank you. I do, I do uh, have one request, Madam Chair, um, and this is for our staff that after the uh, conclusion of all actions from the governor, if we could have our um, contract lobbyists come in and give a, you know, a wrap-up, legislative wrap-up when appropriate in the November hearing. Yeah. That would be great. Thank you. All right, um, hearing no other comment. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Vice Chair. Yeah, I just wanna, uh, I wanna support the consent calendar, but I want the record to show that I was absent on the 15th mm. of, uh, of the month of the previous meeting. Okay, is that an amendment to the minutes then? Yes. Okay, awesome. Uh, I see the clerk taking studious notes over here, so thank you, Vice Chair. Um, all in favor of the consent calendar, please um, say aye. Any opposed or abstention? The measure passes. Thank you. Moving on to item number three, the business operations tax modernization. Um, staff, please come up to give the presentation. Hello, Mr. Director. Uh, good morning, members of the committee um, and members of the public. My name is Pete Coletto. I'm the finance director for the city of Sacramento. And we're going to talk about business operation tax modernization options. And before I begin, I really want to acknowledge the work of Jackie Rice and Brian Howard on my staff. They're our resident business operation tax gurus, and they were instrumental in bringing this forward. So this is really to follow up on the council's direction during budget hearings, um, where the council directed staff to explore modernization options for our business operations tax. Uh, the BOT on non-cannabis businesses hasn't been updated since 1991 and levels haven't been adjusted for inflation. In 2010, council um, considered a recommendation to bring a ballot 
measure forward to uh, increase the rate and increase the levels in the tax, uh, but ended up deciding not to do that. And voters have recently acted on the cannabis business operations tax, so this presentation is really going to focus on the non-cannabis business portions of the tax. Uh, so the current tax, it was established in 1975. It was last updated in 1991. The current maximum uh, payment cap or annual tax liability is $5,000. Uh, charitable organizations are exempt, and landlords running three or fewer uh, units are exempt. And again, there are some different categories here. Uh, professional business owners, brokers, uh, they pay a flat rate and then a per licensed employee rate. Housing and shelter has a flat rate and then a per unit rate. Uh, construction and admin manufacturing headquarters, uh, they have a gross receipts equivalent rate, which is either determined by the permit costs or by gross payroll. And then all other businesses, these are uh, service and sales businesses, they have a 0.04%, so 40 cents of every $1,000 um, tax in gross receipts. That starts at $10,000 of gross receipts. And um, just like, that's the vast majority. We'll, we'll show that in a second. Uh, to give an idea of the magnitude of the tax, it's about $9 million per year for the non-cannabis BOT. And this shows the breakdown of uh, the types of businesses that are paying BOT. You know, again, as I mentioned, that gross receipts, the sales and services category, they make up the vast majority. And so um, any changes that we consider uh, would primarily impact them more than the other categories. Uh, so this is really the profile of who's paying and how much uh, the gross receipts. So it's broken down at various levels. Um, you might be wondering why 12 and a half million. That seems like a weird threshold. Uh, that's because that's where you would start paying the maximum $5,000 um, tax. So that's kind of why it's broken up that way. Um, you can see that you know most of our businesses are below that level. Um, and you can see that you know, their effective rate, it's very regressive, and that's because of that low $5,000 cap. So if you make um, you know, $500 million in, in gross receipts, you're only paying $5,000. And you can see the other categories there as well to make up the $8.9 million. Uh, so really, what, when we sat down and we said, okay, well, how are we going to modernize? Uh, we, we took a look at a few things. So one was uh, taking a look at similarly sized California cities, ones that we typically use in comparisons when we're talking about labor agreements and things like that. And we also looked at the federal government's you know, generally accepted criteria for a good tax system. So adequacy, is it raising enough revenue? Administrative ease, are the rules very clear and everyone can understand them? Can we implement it in an efficient manner? Uh, efficiency, so we don't want the tax to put people out of business or make them move or uh, otherwise conduct business like they wouldn't without a tax. Uh, fairness and equity, so are similar, similarly situated businesses paying the same rate and are we taking into account ability to pay? Uh, simplicity, we want the public and taxpayers to understand. We want the taxpayers to uh, easily be able to calculate how much they owe. And transparency, so we want clear, easily accessible rules and information. So this was a list of some of the similar, similarly sized uh, California jurisdictions. Um, you know, they're a little bit all over the map. So some cities, their business license tax isn't necessarily gross receipts based. It's based on a per employee charge. Um, you know, some have maximums, some don't. 
Uh, most have, uh, you know, I would say a more regressive structure where you pay a lower rate at higher gross receipts. Oakland has the opposite. They have a progressive structure. Um, some are indexed to inflation. Um, some have, you know, various flat fees for different types of businesses. So what we tried to do was take elements that we thought would work well for the city of Sacramento when we were developing options for the committee to look into. So here are some of our findings. So again, the big one is inflation. So those, that $5,000 uh, level was set back in 1991. Obviously a $2023 is worth a lot less than a $1991 after 30 plus years of inflation. Um, so that same limit would equate to over $11,000 today. Uh, our operating costs as a city have also experienced inflation. Uh, again, you know, as I mentioned, many of our peer jurisdictions don't have a cap. The ones that do have a significantly higher one than $5,000. And again, we want to look at ways to standardize rules and make the tax easier to administer. So we came up with three options. Um, one, and we'll go into more detail on each of them. The first one is just a pure inflation adjustment. What if we took our current tax, put it in 2023 dollars, and then index to inflation? Uh, the second was we wanted to look at what it would look like to increase the rate and also remove the maximum. And the third is our staff recommendation where we're trying to kind of balance all of these factors, the need to raise revenue with the impact on businesses, especially our small and medium-sized businesses. So option one, um, again, it's going to raise the minimum threshold by inflation from 10000 to over 22000 It'll raise the minimum payment, which currently is $30 to 68, and it will, won't change the rate. Um, it'll adjust the flat fees and per employee rates by inflation. It'll adjust the flat fees um, and per room for rentals by inflation. We would include an annual inflation adjustment um, so that we're not in the same position 30 years from now. Um, and we would increase the maximum payment cap to $11,405. And overall, if we, t we did the revenue impacts by looking at the last fiscal year's data and saying in each of these scenarios, uh, what additional revenue would be raised. So in this scenario, it would be about $3 million. In option two, um, you know, again, the, the minimum threshold and the minimum payment adjusted by inflation, this would increase the rate from 0.04% to 0.06%. It would make those same adjustments for um, professionals and rentals, and it would have the annual inflation adjustment. And again, it would remove that maximum cap. And so that would result in uh, just over $17 million in additional revenue. And option three, um, again, we're trying to, this is uh, our staff recommendation. We would increase the gross receipts minimum threshold by an even higher amount. This is really to try to help protect small and medium-sized businesses. That would increase to $50,000. The minimum payment would increase by a lower amount than inflation, so from $30 to $50, no change in the rate. And the other thing to note here is the annual maximum payment cap would increase to $150,000. So that's you know, a bigger um, increase than in option one. And the revenue impact from this would be just over $6.5 million. So this is to really show that, um, that impact by business size of each of the three options. You can see option one, pretty much everyone's going to see um, you know, a similarly sized increase. In option two, um, you see that those kind of 
lower or the higher gross receipts categories really bear um, this huge cost. So that $8.8 million uh, for businesses grossing over $100 million a year um, is spread over just 37 firms. And option three, uh, it really holds the, it mostly holds the businesses making under $12.5 million harmless. It's, it's, you know, very little change for them. Um, and then at those higher levels, you see that that's where that increased revenue really comes from. Um, this just shows that effective tax rate by business size, and you can see, you know, the current option and option one are, are fairly similar, pretty regressive. Um, option three uh, kind of has a little bit more of a balance. And then this is to show just the average dollar increase for your kind of average business in each of those categories. Um, you know, the first thing you may ask is, hey, why is it only $5 for option three and only 22 versus what that kind of inflation adjustment would be? This is because of how the data set up. Some of the businesses that, you know, had no gross receipts, they may have been making a makeup payment last year. So that's why. But if you're one of those businesses, your, your tax liability in option three would be 20 and in options one and two would be 38. So again, this is just to summarize the options. Um, you know, this shows each of the changes and the revenue impacts. And we wanted to kind of give some pros and cons. So, um, you know, option one, uh, the big pro is it's the lowest impact on businesses. Um, it also is gonna, all of these options are also gonna include that inflation adjustment. Uh, the con is it's the, lowest, it's the lowest revenue increase. It maintains the very regressive structure. Option two is the biggest revenue increase, but it's also the biggest impact on businesses. And the other thing to just consider is, you know, it could have, if we impact business behavior, it can have impact on other revenue streams. We have a, lar a lot of large business to business and other sales tax generators who are in that, those kind of big categories that would be impacted. And then option three, you know, lower uh, revenue impact than option two, higher than option one. Um, and again, it kind of protects the, the small to medium-sized businesses. So some other uh, considerations for the committee. One is that we have a projected structural budget deficit. So our expenses are increasing at a faster rate than our revenues, and something's got to give. Um, and again, you know, uh, all of the, for this particular tax, these limits haven't changed since 1991. And so, again, the, the value of that, of that dollar today is a lot less. Uh, we want to make sure that we're considering the impact on our local businesses. Um, you know, our very low maximum that we have currently creates a very regressive structure. But a gross receipts tax is a top-line tax. It's not taking into uh, account, you know, various business expenses, and it can impact different firms differently. Um, and again, you know, we want to make sure that we're not impacting other revenues that these businesses are driving. Um, you know, one, another consideration is we could phase things in. So we could, um, any option that you chose, you could phase in the maximum, you could phase in the thresholds. If you, if the committee wanted to do a rate increase, you could phase that in as well to try to make it a smoother transition. Um, and then again, the timing of the ballot measure and our budget development process. So. We'll uh, put forward the timeline for a March ballot measure. Uh, from staff's perspective, that's helpful in that it would help inform the budget process going forward, but obviously the committee could 
decide to not move it forward or move it forward at a later date. Um, and for the March ballot measure, we're, uh, it's pedal to the metal. So uh, we have very tight deadlines to make the ballot. Um, you know, the first step was presenting this follow-up from council's direction to the Law and Ledge Committee, which we're doing today. Um, we would need the council to consider and approve a, a BOT modernization ordinance at the October 31st meeting in order to meet the deadlines, the clerk's deadlines, to get on the March ballot because on November 14th is when the council would have to act to put it on the ballot. So I've done a lot of talking, <laughs> um, but that is uh, it for our presentation, but we're happy to answer any questions. Thank you. I think this is your first big presentation as our finance director, too. So it is. <laughs> Thank you. Welcome. Um, so let's move to public comment first. Madam Clerk, do you have anyone signed up? We don't have any public comment for this item. No public comment on this item. Oh. Um, yeah, let's, uh, since you're, yeah, we'll fill it out after if you want, if you want to start talking now, yeah. They just like to have contact information and stuff. Hi. Good morning. I'm uh, Douglas Nelson from College Oak Towing of Sacramento. Been a business owner and property tenant for many years in the city of Sacramento. Uh, I, and I know there's, there, there's needs for increases in business tax. But one of the problems that, that I have of I've spent millions of dollars, I'm literally millions of dollars on my property. And everybody around me, they're getting away with murder, with not developing their property. So doing this business tax is not the, the number 100% solution to collecting revenue. Because if, if these people in my area have the business license that's required to do business on their property, their property's not developed. The land use is being misused because there's no setbacks for any of the improvements, the roads and the streets. And these trucking companies are coming in. I'm in the trucking industry. I have four and a half acres of developed land that costs millions of dollars to keep maintained yearly and, and, and developed. And we have gravel lots. We have trucking companies that are coming in in groves and nobody is enforcing the land use. So if we want more money and revenue for our infrastructure, we need to go off to the people that are not licensed and permitted to, for the land uses. So this is not the answer here of hitting and taxing the people that are already in business that are doing the right thing. It's the ones to go after the business tax and make sure their land is, in, and get the property taxes in, in adjacent to what the, the increase to cost to do business in the city is. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. And I, um, I see assistant manager Mario Lara in the back room. Oh, there he is, perked up. Um, hi, Mario. Can you come talk to this gentleman about the code um, compliance process? Because it sounds like we need to get our code teams out there as well, sir. Well, I mean, it's... it's yeah, I, I hear your larger point, but I just want to make it's sure... It's going to take the whole team because it's the whole entire area is, is grown over... Absolutely. ...with trucking firms because there's no place to park trucking. Yeah, I... So that's where... It needs to be, I mean, the business license is one thing, but it's... I appreciate that, sir. Um, so if you could let Mr. Mario Lara back there know where you're talking about, we'll follow up on that as well. Thank you. All right. Um, that is it for public comments. So we will turn to the committee, and let's let Councilmember Kaplan start us off. Thank you, Chair Valenzuela. Uh, welcome. Uh, good to see you in person. Um, and welcome to the city of Sacramento. Um, so one of the things which, thank you for the comprehensive like background, but um, 
just for future. Um, none of the council members were here on the dais in 2010, so I found it extremely helpful uh, per our conversation yesterday to get the 2010 report. But just as we go forward, when we're bringing up items that our amazing city staff who've been here for that long, it's you guys know it, um, we don't. And I think that that 2010 report provided a lot of background. Um, you know, it's uh, the BOT started in 1991 and under its current structure. That's correct, yes. And um, it was presented as to look at adjusting in 2010. Is there any reasoning why it was not adjusted in 2010? So, I, I mean, I also wasn't here in 2010, but I, my understanding I, I, is. I see yeah. Lainey can come on up. I saw a hand raised. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, good afternoon. Is it afternoon? Good morning, Lainey Milstein, Assistant City Manager. It was actually brought to council in 2010 based on the direction from the management partners report and council chose at that time not to take action. A management partners subsequently um, has uh, re-suggested in a 2020 um, update of their audit and um, budget staff has included this as a strategy for the last 13 years in every budget book since then. So. We, we could have and should have and will in the future point to all of those things. Thank you. And then just yeah. since you're up here, a little context, because I think context it matters here. Um, why was that report done in 2010, if people want to understand what was the, what status was the city of Sacramento in then? Sure. We were in deep, dark um, cut mode as the um, effects of the Great Recession uh, impacted our revenues. So we were in the efforts of leaving no stone unturned in order to look at ways that we could bolster our revenues in order to avoid what turned into $258 million of cuts over five years, four years. And then with the 2020 uh, update of suggesting this, have there been any meetings uh, with stakeholders or business groups by any chance? Uh, no, we have, discuss this. we have not discussed this um, with our stakeholder groups. We were waiting for <laughs> some direction to say, yes, go forth. And that's our intent over the next few weeks. And then why are you suggesting March and not November? Because it seems a little rushed. And so I, I'd like to have a little pause. It does. Understanding what's coming forward from the state, potentially lots and lots of bond measures, lots and lots of spending. So our hope is to not have this compete. Although this is a modernization measure, we still don't. My, our fear is that people are going to go down that list and go, no, 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 no. And so we want to give this a fighting chance to not be buried with all of those other measures that we understand may be coming forward. So just to make clear, we as the council can't say, please go forth and modernize this. We actually have to go out to the voters. That is correct because it is a tax. Proposition 26 requires it to be approved by the voters. And is it a two-thirds, a majority? It, because it just goes to the general fund, it is just a majority. Thank you, you for, for that. I really appreciate it. Um, I appreciate the, the staff's um, awareness that, you know, while I'd love to see an additional $17 million in our coffers, I think there's a balance that that needs to be um, looked at. Uh, I look forward to hearing from my fellow um, council members. I am leaning towards staff recommendation um, item three because it's, it's um, I think it's derelict of duty for us not to consider this a move forward where somebody has a $125 million business and their BOT tax is 5000 and um, is there any other jurisdiction that you looked at that has uh, a cap at 5000 for extremely large gross receipt businesses? Uh, no, none that we saw. 
And then just a reminder, under three, it really is only looked at a potential increase after gross receipt of 12.5 million. Is that correct, what you showed on this line? Correct, yes. If we looked at the um, past fiscal year's data, it would be businesses above that level, on average, that would um, see an increase. Because for me, like our small businesses really are our bread and butter. There are families, there are neighbors. Um, I want to make sure that we support them, but also do a fair balance because I also don't believe that um, while we have a duty here in the city of Sacramento to, to balance our books, I don't believe it's fair on businesses to say you're going to balance our, our books. Um, but oh, when you bring in a large amount of gross receipt revenue, um, just paying 5000 which hasn't been adjusted since 1991. I think we're, we're, we're not doing our job. Um, but something I would be mindful of, because when you go from 5000 to 150000 while these are extremely large businesses, um, I also know they look at annual returns of do we phase it where the first year it's 50, second it's 100, third it's 150. So that there is time uh, for a phased approach um, in this regard, because I think we also have to tell the story and the narrative that we at the city of Sacramento, uh, with the council before us, are looking at, at modernizing and how do we provide that fair balance while also protecting small businesses, but not going to extremes. Um, with businesses. So I look forward to hearing uh, thoughts of my fellow council members, but I am uh, leaning towards option three. Great. Thank you, council member, vice mayor Guerra. Yeah, thank you very much, madam chair, and I appreciate my comments from my colleague. I, I agree with uh, the grand majority of those points there. Uh, one question here. Um, on the flat fee for uh, rental and hotels, um, does that include um, short-term rentals as well, or are they excluded from this, or how would how would that work? Because it's a it's a weird it's a tricky situation. We're not sometimes it's it's one room or one not. So the short-term rentals, I believe, are a fifty-dollar flat fee as their BOT. At the BOT currently, yes. yeah, okay. And as part of this recommendation, they would stay at fifty dollars. Uh, yes. Or sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. We're um, we in our ordinance. We would want to align them with other rentals. Okay. So they All would right. be with um, residential and uh, hotel. Okay. Good. Good. I want to make sure that there's some parity there as well. And uh, um, for you know, I mean, a lot of our um, our hotels are also employing our local employees and um, and uh, you know providing. You know the uh, retirement and health care in those situations. I want to make sure that we, we have some parity there. Um, so first, uh, like some com you know comments here. I, I um, wasn't here in 2010. <laughs> I watched the council meeting though, um, and uh, and I do remember our conversation in 2020 though. And uh, both of those uh, considerations was the the fact that uh, that uh, the largest number of of people that get impacted are actually small businesses. I mean, so the during the recession, um, obviously. You know, our downtown area with many state workers being laid off were also being impacted. And then during 2020, you know, later on during through um, COVID, um, it was also those retail small business owners that were being impacted at the same time. So even uh, I think I think we were in, in a very different uh, circumstances there. And uh, and I was one of those at that time that did not want to put additional pressures. 
in that time frame for uh, for those. Um, I think the slide that showed the uh, the breakdown where you know the preponderance of, of folks that that are impacted are are in uh, you know the less than um, uh, you know actually less than five million, not even twelve million. Um, that's the biggest chunk of our our, our businesses, and so. Uh, I'm, uh, uh, you know, appreciative of staff really being considerate of a lot of those small businesses uh, through option three, which wouldn't affect necessarily them. Those that make over $100 million is only 37 compared to the $24,000. Uh, so, uh, but uh, at the same time, you know, some of these are, are also heavy and large employers too, so that we we got to be co uh, cognizant of that. Uh, impact. I, th I don't think it's fair just to single out one large entity, particularly some of these are, are, are large manufacturers who do pay well above a minimum wage and, and a living wage. Um, you know, uh, one thing that uh, I would ask as this coming forward, and I, I asked staff to do the, the, to bring this information. It doesn't have to be right now, but I'd like to sit down and figure out how this impacts some of them are, are minority um, grocers. Uh, my understanding is that they're not in that uh, high category, but um, the thing about some of the grocers or any any uh, business that does small um, uh, revenues that they they sell a lot of products so their gross revenues goes up but they don't they make maybe you know half of a penny on on every transaction so um, they may not be they may have a high gross revenue but that doesn't mean that their profit is at that same level so um, I want to just have some assurances before we uh, get this to council about that we're not impacting some of uh, those folks there and, and what we could do moving forward. So with that, um, I'm very pleased uh, that the staff took the time to find something that wasn't uh, as uh, regressive uh, and, uh, and also looks at, at creating a, um, you know, some, some right-sizing uh, for something that we've seen be a pretty predictable and stable revenue source for the city. So it's not making drastic swings. Uh, in the grander scope of our budget, it's it's a it's still a minor piece. It's not going to you know, it's not going to correct the structural uh, issues that we have. So with that, Madam Chair, I'll go ahead and move the uh, staff recommendation a re recommendation but option three uh, with the uh, request that staff come back and report on those two particular issues. Uh, Thank you. We have a motion and a second, Vice Chair Jennings. And you have a third as well. <laughs> But um, I do have a couple questions. I just want to um, make sure I understand. Um, are we looking at a phased-in approach, or do you need direction from this council in order to make that decision? Uh, we would like direction from the committee on whether to phase it in or bring it. So at, at this point in time, I think um, I think the thing that concerns me the most in today's um, presentation. Well, let me before I talk about what concerns me is let me tell you. I was really pleased with the presentation <clears throat> and the materials that were presented at the, uh, in there as well. And so I want to compliment you and the staff on the great work as far as the presentation and the materials that was presented. Um, <coughs> what affects me is not seeing the business community here to speak on the item. And I, I really wanted to try to understand what outreach did we try to do and what can we do to understand how they feel about these options that we're now voting on? Um, so, Councilmember, as uh, Assistant City Manager Manager Mosin said, we haven't done that outreach yet. Um, you know, we are happy to do that outreach and meet with 
any of the stakeholders. Uh, we wanted to get some direction on kind of is this something that the committee and council wants to even consider uh, before doing that. Uh, but yeah, we're, 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 help, we're happy to and we will meet with um, any of the stakeholder groups who uh, have questions or want to discuss this. Uh, I'll also say to your uh, first comment, uh, that's my staff. I have a great staff. That's okay. Right. <laughs> so I'll leave that at that. Um, so on the tight timeline that you're on, October the 3rd, we're here today. The 31st, you go through the full council. November the 14th, you're trying to get it on the ballot. Do you have the time and the resources and the staff to be able to get out to the community and get the outreach that you want? So Laney may, Laney's going to chime in. And Laney, if you could add to your answer on that, because I just made a note and checked with the clerk. I believe we canceled the city council meeting on the 31st. So what's the drop dead deadline to get it on the March ballot? We've canceled the five o'clock on the 31st. Oh, so we're talking the 2 I believe there is still a 2 p.m. to do the to do this okay. business. Thank you. Um, we talked with Denise Malvetti and uh, Michael Josso of our uh, um, OIED and have asked them should we get direction from this committee about outreach to the community. So we believe um, with um, the great staff in the revenue division and our finance director, myself, and the help of the folks in OIED to connect with the community that we will have both um, time and opportunity to engage um, with our businesses. Um, I was going to reach out yesterday to the chamber, but you know yesterday there was a big announcement about a change up at the chamber, and so I hesitated. I will do that um, today, tomorrow, once we receive direction from council. Um, so, and just so you know what happens between now and then is we dispatch and are grateful to our great city attorney staff who is going to help us draft um, all of this that will come back and go through their review process on the 31st. So there's a big body of work that's going to happen um, through that in order for us to bring it back to you on the 31st. Okay, you got your work cut out. Um, so with that, I won't. I don't have any other questions at this time. I, I'll support the motion um, to go forward with option three. I think it does provide the best option. The, the only other feedback that I want to talk about for consideration is the cap on option three at 150,000 and the number of businesses that it does affect. And so we've had this conversation with staff a little bit uh, by taking that cap to 99,000, um, the impact to our businesses that potentially could be flight risk, a flight risk would be lowered. So I do want to have us have a conversation about that before the 31st before we come before the full council, just to see if there's an option of adjusting that without there being a major impact to the revenue to the city. Yeah, we can do that. It's also on the 31st. I think that the, the value of the cap can be something as we report information back to you that could be changed when we're at council, and that might be something that council wants to consider. Also, I want to say if your phase-in is a friendly amendment, does the motion maker accept that and our seconder accept that phase in just to make sure we're clear on direction yep thumbs up thank you okay thank you chair that's it for me yeah i'm trying to only use my privilege of speaking first sometimes um so thank you for the robust discussion here i do want to say um laney that i just confirmed with the clerk there is no 2 p.m meeting on the 31st either so we uh need to figure out timeline and if it's i think november is technically the deadline for the march ballot it does put us really close but um if anybody can do it 
our clerks team can. Um, so I just want to put that on your radar in terms of timeline because I think all of us would be interested in helping support outreach to businesses. I do want to just in framing um, say that this current rate is 0.04%. So to put it in context, because how we got here is we were talking about the cannabis BOT. We charge cannabis businesses in our region a hundred times more than we charge any other business. And I just like, I have to make that point because every time I look at this number, it's like, my goodness, that is such a huge difference. Um, I do want to build off of what the vice mayor mentioned about grocery stores. Um, I actually, I really appreciate that we have different rates for things like professional brokers, housing, construction headquarters, et cetera. I would like to think about what it looks like to have a special rate for grocery stores. Um, and it would be something that we would need to define in the code um, in terms of what I've seen in other jurisdictions is they look at percentage of sales space that's uncooked produce um, and really think about it be something that they would have to apply to us for and say, hey, I think I'm eligible and kind of make the case. But I am very sensitive to the fact that some of these folks who might be over 12 million, as was mentioned, actually have very high operating and very close margins and grocery stores are one that I'm particularly concerned about. And I just want to make sure that we explore what it would look like to add them as a different rate industry um, given the priority I know that exists in my district to protect access to food. Um, I also do want to push back a little bit on our definition of a small business um, because I $10,000 is less than $1,000 a month in grocery receipts. Um, $100,000 means you're bringing in just over $8,000 a month in gross receipts and that's before lease payments or other expenses, employee costs, whatever. That's not a very big business at all. I would not call that a medium-sized business. And so when I look at option three, I really appreciate that you made this chart about revenue impacts by industry group. Um, I would like, and I, if my colleagues who made the motion are amenable, for us to consider the threshold being 100,000 instead of 50,000. Um, I just think if you're at 100,000, you're not really in that different of a position than someone who makes 50,000 and you're not a big enough business. And I think that that really more accurately in my mind captures the truly small mom and pop small businesses versus businesses that get up to a million obviously are in a very different bracket. So I don't know if the motion maker is um, interested in having staff explore 100,000 as the gross receipts threshold or not. Um, I wouldn't mind as it comes back to look at the comparison. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, I, exactly. Breaking it up even more. I mean, it's not a big number of, of businesses. So, I mean, we're, we're talking in that if you add all those top three categories, we're maybe looking at 200 businesses. Yeah. So breaking it up and figuring out what that looks like, I, I, I'd like to see that. Yeah, I just want to definitely um, look at that because, like, as someone who ran my own consulting firm business, um, yeah, 100K is not like, I'm not, you're not rolling in the dough um, with 100K. I mean, you're paying, you know, expenses and you're paying subcontract salaries and that's pretty much it. Um, so that is my other thing is, I guess, um, adding a new grocery store. I just want to note how much I appreciate that option three really addresses the regressive nature of our BOT in a significant way. And especially if we move the threshold up to 100000 because when you look at this chart, um, businesses who are making $100,000 or less are paying significantly more than businesses who are making millions of dollars in terms of percentage of their sales. And so I think this option three proposal, especially if we're willing to consider 100000 as the new base, 
would be great because now almost across the board you're seeing the same rate, um, which is I think how it should be. We shouldn't be charging our small businesses more. And so I just want to appreciate that you address that concern. I will say I'm open to consideration of phase-in, but I'm a little less interested because I mean the phase-in would only affect businesses that make over twelve and a half million dollars in gross receipts. And so I just want to make sure we keep that in perspective, especially as we look at somewhat urgent budget needs that, you know, if you're making over twelve and a half million dollars, a hundred thousand dollars like, I just want to think about what that means um, and really be thoughtful about whether a phase-in is necessary um, versus, because it'll still be over a year until this is implemented um, with the ballot measure and all of that. Um, so yeah, with that and also recognizing that yes, there is no October 31st meeting, so stakeholders listening, um, adjust the calendar. Laney's already solved the problem, so we will figure it out. But um, my uh, my only major addition would be the looking at grocery stores as a new category for a different rate. Um, I just I want to respect what I've heard from those folks, um, and I think we have. That's it, Vice Mayor. You had an additional question you wanted to ask. Yeah, no, and I appreciate that, uh, Madam Chair. Like I said, you know, I mean, I Stockton Boulevard just got a you know a, a lot of different, uh, both Vietnamese, Chinese, Latino, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Mexican South food grocery stores, and then even just our our, our uh, legacy grocery stores here um, have had a challenge. So I, I appreciate moving that. Um, although I do, I I am sympathetic towards uh, and supportive of the of the phasing approach because it. You know, just because we change the tax structure, that doesn't necessarily also mean it changes the, the, the consumer response to the businesses. And so at some point, people will adjust to that. And, and I get your, the, the point, you know, we're, you know, that some of these are, are um, uh, they're, they're high gross receipts, but that, that goes back to the grocery store piece, you know. <laughs> we don't know all the types of businesses that are impacted by it. Uh, I think it gives, us enough it gives us enough direction for staff to go there, but one piece, and again, this relates to the phase-in, is I haven't heard the response from uh, economic development on this, and we should take this into the context of, it, this isn't in the silo, you know. We just had the last Lawn Ledge hearing where we discussed the Department of Utilities fee as well. And so all of these other uh, uh, expenses that we need to operate our city with um, also have an impact. So it isn't, it isn't just this one tax or one fee. It's, it's all of the different things that accumulate. And as we're trying to right-size our city moving forward, I just want to make sure that we have uh, Econ Dev also looking at this and saying, well, you know, do we have quote unquote, I wouldn't say it a flight risk, I'll, I'll say it, you know, just uh, creating an, uh, a scenario where uh, we are uh, disincentivizing or creating um, a, uh, a reason to look at another region versus our city. So that, that's, that's the only aspect I would say that I'd like to make sure that we get a response from economic development on how, how all of this fits together. And, you know, to our budget itself, it's 6.6 .6 million that we need. But, um, and I, when all of this gets back, yes, uh, I see a, Assistant City Manager Jasso from, that manages economic development here. So, I mean, I like this as a whole fuller picture, so. Good morning, committee. Michael Jasso, Assistant City Manager, as well as the Director of Philosophy, Innovation, and Economic Development. We have and will continue to be in, in uh, coordination and discussion with not just finance, but as you mentioned, we have, uh, over the past two years been in consultation with utilities, kind of, uh, community development, et cetera, because you are absolutely right. Businesses assess their viability on any given location based on total cost of business. And so it's important that we're aware of that, both as we think of total amounts, as we think of timing on discrete uh, kind of uh, taxes, that scenario. Um, uh, it's a very important thing, particularly being fair and being predictable. So. 
Thank you. And that those are the, the predictability piece. I think that's why the phase in may be appropriate as well too. It, it, and it's up to the voters at the end of the day too, so. Yes, it is. Talk about unpredictable. Um, but <laughs> um, I, I do want to say that um, I, I appreciate that point, and I think, and I'm trying to recall, but I know when the Department of Utilities came forward with that fee increase, I think they looked at some of the same cities that you've looked at for BOT, and so maybe there's, it's obviously a super simplistic way to do it, but it would be important, I think, to look regionally and, you know, at comparable cities, you know, like, what is the actual, like, are we still below what other people are, which I think we still will be, um, but it would be good to have that sort of list because um, I don't want everybody just jumping across the river to West Sac. No offense to West Sac, but um, Appreciate it. I want them to stay here. Thank you. Um, all right, I think we have a motion and a second and lots of direction. Peter, do you have any questions for us? You good? Uh, oh, you guys gave us a lot of direction, so I okay. think we're okay. Excellent. Um, all those in favor, please say aye. aye. Any opposed? Abstention. Motion carries unanimously. Thank you all very much. The first of many big discussions today. Um, so item number four, an interim ordinance related to commercial truck usage in North Sacramento and permit requirements. Welcome. Good afternoon. <laughs> Law and Legislation Committee members. Uh, my name is Kevin Collin, I'm the Zoning Administrator for the city and I'm joined today by Greg Sandlin, our Planning Director. If I could, presentation loaded please. Thank you. Uh, by way of overview, in my, in my presentation today, I'll give you an overview of the origin of this legislation, talk about some development trends in the north part of Sacramento. I'll summarize our existing regulations, uh, describe a planning issue that we've identified, and explain the interim ordinance, and then conclude with a recommendation to staff. This legislation is originating out of District 2 back in 2021. It was a council log item. Um, as indicated on the slide and in the staff report, I would characterize our journey to today as starting very broad and of a narrowing. We initially, in, in consultation with the council member's office, worked to address some broader concerns with many different land uses and have briefed the member along that uh, journey of time moving forward through 2022. And in August of last year concluded that a narrowing of focus uh, on certain land use and compatibilities would be appropriate. And then in March of this year, uh, agreed to prepare and present to you today an interim ordinance to address the issue. What we have done in advance of preparing the ordinance is looked at Permit activity, these are land use entitlements that have been processed in the north part of Sacramento with an emphasis on business types that rely on the use of commercial trucks and trailers. These are track, um, in zoning terms, they're pretty archaic in terms of jargon, but you can think of businesses that park, store, repair, or sell trucks exclusively. Contractor storage yards that also have trucks or heavy machinery that are stored on properties. You also could think of warehouses, distribution warehouses that rely on the, the distribution of goods that may spend a time in transit to a building and then in a building and then leave the building and go off premises. What we saw in this map that you see on display, the yellow indicates residential zoning, the purple is industrial zoning. It's been simplified uh, to group those into two primary categories. 
the icons on the right are indicating the different permits that have been considered and acted on, whether they have been approved or in progress or withdrawn or denied. You can see a grouping up in the northeast part in the Robla community, a little bit on the west along Pell and Main, and then south of the freeway in the Norwood Industrial Park. An interesting facet of this development activity is that although the areas in purple are zoned for industrial purposes, they were not developed entirely for that purpose. Time goes on, land uses are built under certain regulations at a point in time, and what I'm noting here in the dark purple is that we do have a unique grouping of what we would call non-conforming uses in particular in the areas I've highlighted on the slide where we have industrial zoning on a map but on the ground we have homes we have folks who live in a single family unit for example looking at this pattern we consider what are the current regulations that apply today yeah, for these particular land uses in the permits I've displayed in the zoning districts that they are located, this can be characterized as a, a by right use. There is a site plan and design review permit that is required by city code. I would characterize this as aesthetic or architectural review only. This is distinguished from other permits that are in city code, such as a conditional use permit where we would additionally be able to, as a city, regulate other facets, such as the operation of a business, its scale, its size, its potential uh, wealth, the welfare aspects of this that may uh, extend beyond the boundaries of a particular property. To give you a, a visual sense of well, what, does, what does this look like, I have a couple slides to show you from an overhead view of a truck-related a truck use that's in that, um, that, that, that abutting uh, scenario where we have uh, truck use on the south is in the Dry Creek Main Avenue intersection, and then we have abutting residential uses to the north on Main. Just to give you a sense of what that would appear from an overhead view. As we've noted in the staff report, there are also uh, particular characteristics that have been uh, in the city's general plan and community plan for the Robla era for, area, for example, that note to just a roadway network that is either incomplete in terms of connections or its physical development is lacking features for drainage, for walking, for lighting. Here we have Santa Ana Avenue a little bit further uh, to the east and south. It's an example of that. Uh, to the right, you see a property being used to park trailers, church on the left, and again, another example of a, of a similar use of that juxtaposition. Um, it introduces uh, some potential safety issues with regard to circulation, whether you're walking safely on a roadway in, in mingling with traffic. There also can be additional issues that we've noted in the staff report that relate to air quality and noise impacts. I'm presenting an interim ordinance, which is in city code. I will address what the code requires. There was a a, um, in consideration of the best uh, potential legislative approach for this, we couldn't help but notice the general plan is out for review. It is, it is in fact written, and it has certain documents, uh, certain provisions that relate to topics that were overlapping in this instance. So the environmental justice aspect, which is a state-mandated element of, this, of a general plan, um, it is intended to address uh, disproportionately affected communities that have 
suffered from exposure to some of the issues that we're observing from air quality, uh, uh, adverse air quality or noise impacts, as well as uh, safety in terms of circulation on roadways. That policy that is in draft format currently, we also observed that it is intending to develop a regulatory measure after adoption of the general plan to address this. How do you, how do you reconcile neighbors which may not be the best neighbors? There is policy EJ-A5 that I have on display here and noted in the staff report where staff has identified a policy for the council to consider and if adopted would be implemented and a subsequent action uh, by staff. I'd like to describe an interim ordinance. It um, has a unique characteristic in city code. One analogy you could use to describe it is it's a bridge. If the city identifies an issue, there is a mechanism to identify interim measures in ordinance format to address the issue while you are studying a, a, a topic. And in this instance, we do have a general plan. So it seemed to have overlapped and, and been the appropriate vehicle. This is not an emergency measure. This is not an urgency ordinance, but it would be in place until repealed by council. What would the ordinance do? It would increase the number of permits from site plan design review to a commission level conditional use permit. It would apply to the land uses that I have described in the previous slides. When they are located in the industrial zones where we're seeing permit activity of M1, M1S, M2, MT. We've defined a geography that I would describe as a result of our analysis of where are the roadway networks most complete in terms of connections and their improvements. So from the northeast and west on Steelhead Creek to the south at Arden Way is where we observed the potential for the roadways to not be fully developed was most prevalent as opposed to going fully south to the river. And lastly, there is a thousand foot buffer from what are defined in the California Air Resources Board Lanny's handbook on community health is a sensitive use. So these are homes. So we've identified existing residential zones, uses, schools, child care centers, medical clinic offices, or senior housing as identified by the Air Board as sensitive, as a buffer. When all of those criteria are met, a conditional use permit would be required. I do want to pause here and add on to the slide uh, since uh, coming to the meeting today, there have been a number of questions that have come up about what, what about my situation? I already have a business. It's on the ground. What happens? Are you going to come to my door and, and require a permit? So I do want to speak to two provisions in city code. There's 17.232, 060, and 100. If this ordinance were adopted, any lawfully established business may continue to operate. There is no permit requirement. It's granted what the code calls a deemed CUP. If you change operations, if you discontinue them for a year, more than a year, then you would be subject to the permit requirement. If you continue in perpetuity, you may exist. Another scenario that I've explained to a few uh, callers is that if you expand your use, you make the land area larger, the footprint, the building larger, 
you would be subject to a CUP requirement. So I do want to make that clarification uh, for, for you all today and our audience. Our, our recommendation is that you review this and you consider passing a motion to forward it to council. Um, before I conclude, I do want to mention that in advance of the meeting, we did provide mailed notice to every property owner that has an industrial zone that would be subject to this ordinance. That was 1,022 property owners. Additionally, every um, registered association or interest group that's within 1,000 feet of any of the industrial zones did get a, a notice as well via email, have got a fair amount of phone calls, um, lots of, lots of uh, diverse opinion on this. So I'll, I'll stop there and um, welcome your questions. Thank you very much for that presentation. Okay, um, and I just want to say that this is a classic environmental justice issue and to folks in the audience, um, nobody ever is, nobody is saying that any business in this area did anything wrong. You followed the rules, you went where you were allowed to go, you did the thing that you were supposed to do. This is really move forward ordinance um, regulation. So I just want to make sure to reiterate what you just said um, as a lawfully established businesses, I'm sure will be coming up to testify. So thank you, Kevin. Um, Madam Clerk, do we have public comments on this item? We have four speakers. The first speaker is Nick Avdis. Madam Chair, members of the Lauren Legislation Committee, uh, Nick Avdis with the Law Offices of Avdis and Coochie uh, here today on behalf of Jensen Enterprises doing business Jensen Precast, uh, a substantial industrial operation that exists off Rayleigh Boulevard. Uh, we were just notified of um, this proposed ordinance. I, in fact, just reviewed it yesterday uh, when my client asked about it. And one of the questions that I think we have is uh, whether we can have some additional time for staff to do outreach to impacted uh, property owners. In fact, when we looked at the staff report, for example, uh, I know Jensen's operations are outside of the a boundary for the um, uh, disadvantaged community designation. Sensitive to your comments, uh, Member Valenzuela, I do think that this needs to bake uh, a little bit more and in terms of working through the details and not impacting uh, existing business and property owners any more than, than is necessary. Uh, furthermore, I think it's interesting that uh, it's based on a policy in the proposed general plan which hasn't been adopted uh, yet and certainly um, this issue that has been articulated um, by staff uh, in terms of disadvantaged communities and the environmental justice issue, it applies citywide. And I think there needs to be a broader discussion because um, piecemealing this is going to be extremely painful. So I would ask that this be continued for at least the next uh, law and legislation um, meeting. Uh, to give uh, property owners and business owners an opportunity to sit down with staff and certainly want to sit down with the council member for the district. Um, we were not aware that, again, that this was something that was on a table, on the table, no outreach was done. So, again, I would ask this item be continued uh, to give ample opportunity to work through some of the issues we're having. I mean, Jensen, for example, employs over a 1,000 people uh, across its operations, and this is a very critical site. It produces components that are needed for... Uh, Thank you for your comments. Your time is complete. Our next speaker is Ryan Hooper. Good afternoon, Chair Valenzuela, members of the Law and Legislation Committee. My name is Ryan Hooper with Thatch and Hooper. We're representing Don Starr with respect to his property located at 2320 Downer Way in North Sacramento. 
Uh, just by way of background, our client has owned this property since 2008. It's made a substantial um, investment in this location. He's been a good operator. He's had no known violations of any city code, code enforcement issues or the like. He's essentially a landlord. Um, he has this property. It's a little over an acre and a quarter. Um, and he's a landlord to various different mom and pa type um, industrial users. As, um, uh, Council Member Kaplan had pointed out earlier on the last item, these small businesses are really the, the bread and butter um, of, the, of the city, and they are um, entitled, I think, to, to some deference when we're looking at these uh, zoning changes. Um, I think that our client and others probably have an expectation of continued use and, and value, and that's really where the concern lies. Um, we've worked with staff. Um, we've only known about this for a short period of time, as Mr. Abdus um, acknowledged. We, too, would like some additional time time for outreach with staff. Um, our, our concern isn't so much moving forward, it's how to make sure that we're properly protecting the rights of those that are already out there in business. Um, and so we would be looking for clarification that all of the existing uses that our client has on their property would indeed be um, uh, permitted to continue. Um, and uh, again, just ask for some additional time to work with staff. Um, I detected some willingness from my conversation this morning with staff to do so. Thank you very much. Thank you for your comments. Our next speaker is Brian Manning. Good afternoon, Brian Manning um, from the Desmond Firm on behalf of Jensen Precast and Yee Trust, uh, who own four properties in the area. I would also echo that this, uh, the outreach has been essentially non-existent. I uh, saw this morning that there were six months ago that there was a presentation and request that this be provided um, to the staff now, um, and this is the first we're hearing about it less than a week later. So we request additional uh, time to have those stakeholder discussions. Also, uh, there's no real indication of how long this will last, and it is uh, a significant impact on existing businesses as well as properties within the area that are not yet developed. Um, there's no indication of when this will sunset um, or um, uh, when people will be able to proceed forward with a, a basic understanding of what they can expect. Um, also, uh, I, I think that it is missing the point in that you're treating one group in a different manner than other similarly situated um, property owners. And that's, a, uh, in my view, a violation of the Equal Protection Clause because what you're doing is you're taking properties in industrial areas in North Sacramento and saddling them with different rules and regulations than those exist in South Sacramento. And so while the, um, the, the issue may be laudable and uh, the environmental justice is certainly something that we all need to discuss, I don't think it can be applied uh, unequally. Also, um, this will result in, a, in my view, a reduction in property values and a down zoning of property. And I don't think any of these issues have been discussed or considered, which is why we believe we need additional time. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Our next speaker is Todd Sperger. My name is Todd Sperber, and thank you very much for allowing me to talk. Um, I am a property owner 
in the area. I have two. I've uh, been actually looking at the map on my phone today. I think I actually have three properties that would be affected by this. No one has notified me ever of this. I heard about it from a tenant, sent me a text or a, a text photo of the notification saying, hey, is this important? As a property owner, I, I contacted this morning, I contacted, I'm partners with one, two, three, four, five, I'm, con I'm partners with five other individuals on these buildings. No one has been contacted. So absolutely, I'm, I'm begging you guys to give us time to actually analyze what this is and what this means. The other thing I wanna talk about is the pictures that, that this gentleman showed um, where there's a house on one side and a warehouse on the other. The properties that I have, uh, a few of them as an example are on Main and Pell. That area was specifically developed for heavy industrial. You come off of Northgate, it's a heavy industrial road. It's not a residential road. You come on Main, that is a heavy industrial road. Pell Avenue is a heavy industrial road. As you'll notice by my attire today, by the way, which is not the attire to speak to a council in, but it's the attire to go pick up a trailer where I'm going to pick up trash because of the amount of homeless people that dump all of their stuff on our properties every day. You're talking about adding additional expenses to, to businesses in the area, to property owners in the area. You're gonna devalue my property. You're gonna cause them to move to other locations. This isn't right, first of all, Time is important. I needed to be notified, and it's not fair, and no one that I've talked to has been notified, other than some of my tenants. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your comments. Our next speaker is Keon Bliss. Greetings, Council. I'm uh, speaking as an individual uh, resident of District 4, and wasn't planning to really speak on this, but looking at the comments um, that largely come seem to be coming from the business community, I feel like it's important uh, that at least some uh, representation from residents who live within these industrial areas or, or around these areas is necessary. So I would actually ask the question of, um, similar to what the business community asks, is what outreach was done to the uh, low-income residents who live in a lot of these uh, what have long been considered air quality monitoring deserts, um, which this ordinance is seeking to uh, bet, like to better address at least. I mean, I know there have been at least some pros uh, progress or at least pilot programs to uh, really monitor the air quality within these areas, but many people that I know that live within them, and I have many friends um, and loved ones that are in the North and Sa uh, South Sacramento areas that were highlighted in that map, um, they don't have time to really like follow along with these uh, like with these bureaucratic meetings as well as like you know being track of the legalese that comes into a lot of these ordinances but business communities that are up here complaining absolutely do and they have armies like many of them have armies of lawyers or uh, represented interest groups that oftentimes come up here and throw up things like the 14th amendment as if that is uh, a clause exclusively intended to protect their commercial rights and property rights as opposed to make guaranteeing equal protection for everyone, most particularly uh, those most vulnerable uh, low-income residents uh, that they are living near. So I would really encourage uh, us to, you know, take a deep look at this, but also 
uh, if there needs to be outreach or additional consideration, actually consider and ask uh, the residents that live there and not just the people with the most money and, and are most advantaged. Our last speaker is Sheridan Evans. Good afternoon. My name is Sheridan Evans uh, with Buzz Oats Construction. Uh, just a few questions. Uh, as far as the uh, lack of notice goes, we received notice on, on this uh, last Thursday, so I, I echo what uh, all the other speakers have said. Um, a few questions read through the report. Uh, I saw that there were no financial considerations taken. Uh, as you can tell, they're, uh, even going through a CUP process, that's added uh, permitting fees, added uh, time of loss of operation. Uh, also, as you spoke, uh, if you were expanding your business, uh, that's additional time loss as well. Uh, so I, I would recommend to staff to take a look at the financial considerations as well. Um, also, a few questions as far as operators go. Uh, as the gentleman before me said, you know, they're not, uh, they're typically small, small business owners. You know, they don't deal with, uh, you know, the legal language um, that a lot of the big uh, developers do. Um, and it is small business owners that will have to come out and get this CUP. Uh, so how will the CUP coincide with the new general plan update uh, that's happening? Uh, because oftentimes uh, a CUP takes, I know the city says it takes about four to six months, uh, but typically in experience it takes up to nine months uh, to get these things issued, especially with understaffing and uh, we're also coming into a recession. So it's, it's, uh, there's additional consideration that needs to be taken uh, when it comes to adding in additional costs and also processes to uh, business owners. And one last thing, as far as air quality goes, uh, I didn't see any mention of how this ordinance will attempt to solve the air quality issues. Uh, as far as having a CUP issued, all it seems to do is just add another process to what's ultimately zoned as uh, industrial already. So you're still gonna have an industrial use there. Uh, Thank you for your comments. We have no more speakers. All right, um, I am going to go a little out of order with indulgence of the committee for the council member whose district um, includes this area. So, council member Kaplan, would you like to start us off? Thank you, Chair Valenzuela. Um, and, and for a bit of context, uh, when this discussion first started, it was entirely in council member Lilowie's, uh district. And then uh, I've inherited parts of Robla. Um, and Pell uh, in District 1, so I appreciate, because this now um, affects both of us. So um, I appreciate, and I've been in discussions with Councilmember Lolowe, but I have a couple of questions. So what is the process, and Kevin, can you help me? Um, how did you determine what, what did you say, 1,022 notices went out? How, how does that happen? Yeah, I work with our GIS uh, staff uh, to identify every parcel that connects the dot between where are we where have we issued these permits for these particular land uses, identify those districts, which in then turn I could aggregate every owner of those properties. So everything purple on the, on the map you saw earlier. So can we re-pull up, I, I think that would be a great, uh, for, for me to see context, because um, I have a couple questions, especially the, the one graphic that you, where you had the red circles, the purple zones and then the red circles. 
thank you, staff. I know staff technology behind the scenes is, is working, working the mice to, to pull it back up, which I appreciate. So let me question this. If you didn't receive notice, then this potential change doesn't apply to you? No, it doesn't work that way. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I won't speculate on why a particular piece of mail didn't make it into an individual's hand. What I can assure you is that the list on file is representative of what the county assessor office has as the registered owner of that parcel of land. Uh, if you have split ownership, different I, where the mail goes is where the assessor has determined the owner resides or the entity that does own that. And uh, yeah, so there are many things that could happen. Uh, but and, I, and, and I think it's, it's good to notice, because I actually didn't know that business owners got notice. Um, so that's something new to me. But just for those in the audience, I was not part of the conversations with Councilmember Lalowe. So uh, outside of Chair Valenzuela that sometimes sees things earlier, uh, the rest of us, I got first view in, in reading of this on Thursday um, as well. So I can understand the anxiety. Uh, you know, we have, what, four or five days to get up to speed on this. And this is a, I think it's a delicate balance. As we're looking at the 2040 general plan in how do we look at areas that have historically been disadvantaged, but not as well as punish business owners that work in, by right, it is industrial. They have the right to have their business. They've been set up. Um, we have, as a city, no legal right to say, now you can't operate there. Um, so I just want to make that very clear. Anybody who's watching, you've got a business. We have no legal right as a city to take it away or tell you to stop. Um, because things have been done legally. What can be said is we looked at our 2030 general plan, I've looked at it, and I think we as a city have not done the job we needed to uh, to implement some of the recommendations that were put forward because back then it was looked at the Roblin neighborhood that there needed to be sidewalks, there needed to be uh, widening of streets, we needed to look at how we handle uh, environmental justice and we as a city collectively um, or whomever was elected at that time just didn't push those issues um, and the council make decisions. So it's a delicate balance of now we're looking at it. I think it's a conversation that needs to be had, but um, I do have uh, and want to request a slight pause. Um, do you have by chance the graphic that you could put up? I do. Sorry. That's okay. Um, I have a close up. Oh, oh, oh. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yes, that one. Um, let me pull it up on my screen so I'm not looking behind me as well. So in each of those red areas, I, I want to understand with the circles, is that the thousand square feet? Like, or is that just a broad circle? Yeah, what I'm attempting to draw attention to here is there's a subtle darker shade of purple that's sprinkled in those areas that are surrounded by the red dashed. Uh, rectangles, those are the residential uses in an industrial zone. So um, what I would like, and I have confirmed and conferred with uh, Councilmember Lalowe, is um, I think we need to pull some of our stakeholders together. Um, we need to really look at narrowly tailoring this, because if you look at the ordinance as drafted, um, I think one of the things that was missing, um, especially on page three of the ordinance on number one, is we need the word and because we need to narrowly tailor it. Like you look at Pell, 
there are no non-conforming uh, uses on Pelt. There are no uh, residential. So why would we, in requesting any expansion of businesses along Pell, have them go through a CUP when it's already zoned industrial and it's already by right? Um, but on the items where one, two, three, um, and this is where I also want stakeholder feedback, but we need to look at the, you know, the M1, M1S2, and area and a thousand feet. So if somebody is outside of the thousand feet, there should be no changes. There should there should be no conditional use permit um, requirement. But then I also want to give uh, the time for stakeholders and those who have taken the time to write in, which I appreciated to read the online comments. Those who show up here. What does this mean? As well as reading the ordinance, it does not specifically say that this only applies to new or expanding. So I can understand existing businesses thinking that this might be uh, shutting down some of their current operations. So I would like the time for city staff, our city attorney, um, to make sure that this is is drafted appropriately. Stakeholders come together. Uh, Council Member Lolowe has agreed to this as well as look at this as a pilot, because I think there has to be, this is we pilot, we work out all the idiosyncrasies, 2040 general plan comes in, and this is an item that comes back to city council as to how do we apply it citywide. So this is just an interim basis of how do we start a pilot, address the kinks, work with an area, and how does this then apply when the 2040 general plan is coming in, which is gonna require us to do some of this through SB 1000 um, and changes in state law, uh, that we, we find that balance. But um, I, I'm, I'm not comfortable yet saying we need to go forth and conquer because uh, I think we need to relook at the language that was written and how do we, how do we address it in a nuanced way. So I would like for, um, you know, I want to hear uh, my fellow council member feedback. I'm comfortable with having the stakeholder and kind of move forward. I don't see that there's going to be a whole lot changed per se beyond very narrowly tailoring and providing some, some deadlines. Um, but I want to thank council member Lolowe because not often do we, we bring up environmental justice and try and balance this, but I think we do need to, to balance it, but also give stakeholders the ability to have some feedback. Okay, so to be clear, you're comfortable with the motion to move it to council, just giving you time to do this. Yeah, where it's gonna be a a, a while, um, but it'll be narrowly tailored. Got you. All right, Vice Mayor. Um, Thank you, Madam Chair. I I definitely think this needs more time and to work specifically with the council member. My understanding um, with, when I've spoken with the council member is he's trying to balance that uh, the the, uh, the sensitivity towards the local businesses, but the reason this came up, um, and and I hope the the representatives of those businesses and property owners here will understand, is that it was for the last four years and even before then, people who live in the industrial area um, have had concerns, have had either whether they are the businesses that are here today or not. Um, probably not, because the ones who are non-responsive are usually not the ones that show up but have had issues with um, that relationship. And um, for good or bad, uh, that's not here for us to, to say. You know, I mean, again, you know, uh, decisions were made in the past <clears throat> that allowed for this mixed use and, 
and unfortunately has created that that conflict. Um, my mother lives near a UP railroad, you know, so all, but it's on the south area, in the industrial area, and uh, and I wouldn't say it's a great buffer, um, but um, you know, there at least the power and road kind of somewhat separates that. But there are still communities that are adjacent to, you know, um, uh, large heavy industrial um, operations. And uh, and having looked and seen those uh, the the daily numbers on air impacts, if you're living next to that, anyone that's within 500 feet, you're you're exposed. I mean that's just it. And you don't you may not smell it, you may not see it, but the particulates are small enough to get in your lungs, and that's just that's just a fact. And so what we're trying to do here, I think, is find a solution of how do we one ensure that uh, that uh, what happens in the future. Is, is both respective to not only the property owner, but most importantly, which is a responsibility of this council, which is the health and safety of those who live in those areas. So I think that that needs to be a factor. Now, um, a, a couple things here. I do think that it should be, um, it, 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 this seems to be much more a problem in the Northeast area. So um, yeah, I, I am, uh, uh, have been working and having conversations with the council member because uh, I represent the largest industrial area, and uh, and uh, we do have some very very limited housing in that industrial area. So I I think uh, you know figuring out as I think the chair I mean as the, my my colleague mentioned uh, looking at a pilot program or something that's specific to this area. Some of the concepts that the um, uh, council member and this is why I think it's important. I, I would even be supportive of having it come back to Law and Ledge after the conversation with the council member and the industry um, is, uh, because my understanding is that, uh, that the council member would also like to see um, maybe an administrator level review so that if it isn't that much of a conflict, uh, but it does have a hearing process, it does have the ability for a resident to come in and say, look, they're gonna expand an operation that's going to produce this type of impact next to where I live, um, that's faster than the planning commission, and uh, you know I'm not, I'm not always a, a big advocate of the of the you know the stepping up here of of, of 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 processes, but I think this might be a, a recommendation. Is looking at the, at could you use the administ the, uh, the the zoning administrator level review versus the planning commission review? It's also not as expensive too. So if you're adding just a shed. In your industrial operation, are we going to make you go all the way to the council? But you know, so I think I think there's, um, I think those level of details need to be worked out, uh, and uh, and that level of notification. Uh, and it is an it is an unfortunate situation if you if you're driving down any of that area along Business 80, you're going to have warehouses next to a home, next to a track development, and then another warehouse, and it's. And you know, for whatever for whatever happened in the development in North Sac and um, and Del Paso Heights, uh, you know, unfortunate for for that lack of floor planning. I think uh, what we're trying to do is make sure that we don't exacerbate the impacts of those the people that live there as well. So, um, so I think that would you know, Madam Chair, I think that would be my recommendation is yes to go back with the stakeholders and the council member because I, my understanding is council member would like to see something of a different approach here that allows uh, homes that are next to a, an industrial use at least have some type of uh, conditional use process. 
Uh, I, and uh, he doesn't want to overcomplicate it, and I don't think it should be overcomplicated, but there, I think there needs to be more dialogue. I will say I, uh, I appreciate this conversation happening because in my time that I've, that I've you know, been watching the council at least 20 years, I don't think this has ever come up. Um, and, uh, and from folks that I know, because I had a cousin who lived up in that area, it's always been an issue. It's always been a, from people who live there. They've always felt that frustration. So we do have to balance the, the, uh, the, the unfortunate circumstance that we have here. And again, it's not the people who have a business there or the people who live there. Those decisions were made probably over 30 years ago that now are leading to what we see the data showing, which is we do have unfortunate health impacts that are occurring, and that needs to be addressed. So um, those are my thoughts. And if it means kicking it back and coming back, Madam Chair, I think that might be the best so that there's an opportunity for the businesses to respond appropriately and that the neighbors could, and the council member can figure out what is right by their neighbors because that's, that's the intent of why this was brought here. Okay. Thank you, Vice Mayor. Vice Chair Jennings. Uh, thank you. Um, I, I, I just want to know on the notifications, <clears throat> excuse me, um, when we send the notifications, are we doing that through normal mail or are we doing it through certified mail? And we do it through uh, standard postal service. Standard postal service. So we have no way of knowing whether the owner or the person it was intended to go to actually got it, read it, understood it, or not. That, that would be a method to do certified mail. I can tell you I've gotten over 20 phone calls, which were please tell me about the notice. So we do not individually verify or have that chain of custody, if I could use that term, between sending and receiving. Right, but, but you it sent is out 1,022, correct? Correct. So 20 against 1,022 doesn't, doesn't make me jump up and get excited. So I, I, I'm just saying I think that that's an issue as far as notification is concerned, and I think we need to make sure that it does get to the person that we're trying to get it to, however we do that. But I do think the pilot opportunity gives us more time to get this right, whether it's notification, whether it's the detail, whether it's the health issues, um, whether it's the air quality issues, which this really doesn't address at this time, I, I think we need more time. I think it needs to come back to law and ledge before it goes to the council. Um, that would be my recommendation. And I think we need to bring um, the, the landowners, the property owners together in order to really be able to understand how we can reduce this issue. I was surprised to hear in District 6, you don't have as much of an issue there as we do in District 2. And so I think it's important to get out there and bring people together to have a conversation because I always believe that when you bring people together, they solve their own problems. And maybe there's some solutions in doing that. So um, I think this needs a little bit more time to debate. Um, and I think the, the pilot program before the 2040 general plan comes out gives us an opportunity to find the solutions that we need in order to tie it into the 2040 plan. So that would be my recommendation. Thank you, Vice Chair. Um, before I kick it back to Councilmember Kaplan to make the motion that she's comfortable with, um, I just want to give some comments and again thank staff for your work with the council office on this ordinance. It is 
as uh, the vice mayor said, it's it's one of the first times that we've seen something this tailored come forward. And I think it's really great taking the spirit of SB 1000 to heart that we need to be more proactive at how we address historic issues with land use, especially those that are impacting specific communities that have been left behind for a very long time. Um, folks know that I do environmental justice advocacy and I'm privileged to be working still with some of the groups who sponsored the legislation that required that in the general plan. And this is exactly, I can say exactly, the type of issue that we were trying to address at that time, right? Is how like trucking in neighborhoods is one of the biggest issues if you go to Long Beach, if you go to the Bay. I mean, like these are one of those habitual issues. You go to EJ communities across the state, they're gonna talk about heavy duty trucks in their community. Um, and so while at the same one hand, you can say this is a lawfully established business. You didn't do anything wrong. You went where you were allowed to go. You did what you were supposed to do. Nobody's trying to take that away from you. We also have to grapple with, as my colleague said, the public health implications and the larger stewardship of is this appropriate to be right next to homes. So I would like to say that for me, conditional use permit is more than just additional administrative steps. What we fight for a lot statewide environmental justice policy is informed community process, right? The ability for residents to be told that something is coming, to be told what that means and to have an opportunity to weigh in. Um, it doesn't always mean that everybody's gonna agree at the end of the day, but similar to what the vice chair just said, it gives the community a chance to know, hey, we're gonna expand, we're moving, you might be impacted by this, let's talk about it. One example was actually in the vice mayor's Garris district, I remember when the school was being built, the, um, the central kitchen was being built in Tahoe Park. One of the things they had to do to accommodate that central kitchen is they had to swap the transportation yard with the land that the central kitchen is now on. And what that did is it moved a bunch of buses, including some diesel buses, right behind a residential neighborhood. Um, and at the time, there were some of us in the room who said, hey, wait a minute, like, this might not be good for those residents. They've had more of a buffer since then. Now it's moving closer and it proceeded as it was. And now I'm sure Councilmember Garrett can tell you that he gets lots of complaints from residents about vibration and noise and pollution and headaches. And like, these are the sort of things that residents deserve to know about, especially those who more often than not don't have the resources to sell and move if they don't like what's happening near their communities and they're stuck dealing with something that they didn't have a voice in the process for. So just wanna reemphasize that. And I would also like to ask in this ongoing state stakeholder process. Um, this is moving forward for permits, which I think is very important. I think there is a conversation about best practices for dealing with in exposure now, and not to say additional requirements per se, but more like idling rules, for instance, you know, that vehicles can only idle for so much time. Um, we have done sensitive truck routes before where we say, hey, instead of taking this road, take that road. And obviously all of that has to take into account the operations and logistical needs of those businesses. But I would love to see when this comes back um, some ideas as to what we do today to kind of build a better partnership between those residents and the businesses so they can coexist a little bit more um, with a little bit less impact on everybody involved. So that would be my only additional comment and feedback and then I will kick it back to Councilmember Kaplan to make our motion. Um, thank you and I just want to appreciate everybody's impact because this is new territory uh, that we're heading into of how how are we thoughtful with existing zoning, you know, um, mixed uses that while we talk about how do we mix, how do you do it in the right way, an environmental way, but also not destroying uh, businesses who have the right to be there um, and we balance it. Um, 
So uh, I would just like to get uh, confirmation from chair because I know this is something um, that council member Lilloy has, has worked on for a long time. I like to work expediently. I got a lot on my plate. So pull stakeholders together, residents together. If you know we get something in the next couple months, uh, bringing something back. Because what, what I don't want to see is all of a sudden this comes back in June. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and I will say schedule-wise, um, I don't think there'd be any way for it to come back before the end of the year, if that's helpful, um, just in terms of what our agendas have coming forward. Um, Canada's BOPT, housing stuff, all the like. So if that factors into your consideration, we could try to agendize it as soon as January as we can, as soon as you're ready, but that would be and, a few months. And that's also part of like this committee's consideration. Also, Council Member Lilloe is not part of this committee. I had to remind him uh, this wasn't agendized as a council meeting, so he couldn't, he couldn't show up that I was gonna try and speak for him as best as possible. But that was also one of my suggestions. I know this is new, but I think this also, uh, we need to give him the opportunity while, um, you know, I I'm hoping my word, you guys understand when I say we're going to meet with stakeholders, um, we're going to look at how we narrowly tailor this, but I would like to see this potentially move to council because then that gives council member Lilloe, who did bring this up and brought it up, the ability um, and and I know, you know, since you, Eric, uh, Sean, and I have mostly talked about this, you know, even including you so that you have that, that comfort in this so that it can move on to council, because I know how much we have to do at Law and Ledge, um, and I don't want it coming back to this be another reason why we're not moving forward on an important issue. So if that's okay uh, with my, my fellow colleagues, I... I understanding that uh, we will have stakeholder meetings, we will do outreach, which he's done to the community, work with planning staff, city attorney, we need to narrowly tailor and add in a sunset as this is a pilot program in alignment with the 2040 general plan. If you're okay with me saying those are some of the parameters that when we re work out details, we come to city council. Yeah, I mean, if that's a motion, I would second it. Motion. The only thing I would add, request is that, you know, it, it seems to me when I talk to the council member that um, that uh, there could have been a, a, a another way to simplify it. And so it's this is particularly one of those where it's importantly critical that we work with that council member in drafting this, um, that staff work very closely with that council member in drafting this. Mm -hmm. so. yeah, this, is, this is, you know. I'm oh, sorry, you're muted. Sorry. This this will be Councilmember Lilloe and I working in tandem on this. This is this he's le leading this. I'm just trying to pretend to be him a little bit today. And I represent industrial areas. So this is why also you know I have a keen sensitivity to it as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, Vice yeah. Chair. I, I I just I'm a little concerned only because I don't I don't want to just do something for District Two that we're not doing for the entire city. I'm I'm just a little sensitive about having an ordinance that has just preference for one district. Yeah. So I want to make sure as we do this pilot in District 2 that we come back with a policy for the entire city Absolutely. of Sacramento. That is the commitment through the general plan draft, unless anybody yeah. changes it, which I hope you don't, um, But because I love the EJ element of the general plan, and I'm really excited about it. But yeah, that is the commitment. It's to start with the most overburdened area, which is traditional EJ practice, and then expand out you know, to ensure everybody else is protected as well. So we'll make sure we're all on the same page. Absolutely. Yeah, I commit to that. 
Absolutely. Okay, there is a motion and a second to move it to council once. Robust stakeholder process has um, concluded and with um, vice mayor as well as the council members for the district. Okay, all in favor? Aye. Aye. Any opposed or abstentions? Passes unanimously. Thank you for that robust discussion to be continued with Councilmember Lowy being able to chime in for himself, which is great. Um, all right, moving on to item five, a favorite of the vice mayors, um, outdoor interactive digital media display or digital kiosk policy. Who is our presenter on this? Hi, welcome. Only year six. Oh, perfect. All right. Good afternoon, Chair and Committee members. I'm Jamie Mosler, Associate Planner in the Community Development Department, and I'll be giving today's presentation on digital kiosks. Um, could I briefly interrupt you to ask folks to move conversation outside, please? That would be excellent. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. So by way of overview, first I'll quickly remind everyone what a digital kiosk is, and then I'll go through some of our community outreach findings, and then share the ordinance resolution along with staff's recommendation. So I think we're all pretty familiar with what digital kiosks are, but just a quick reminder when we talk about digital kiosks, this is what we're talking about. They're interactive platforms that provide pedestrians with information and services. So we did community outreach um, in the month of March with our consultant team at Third Plateau. It took three forms. We did interviews with partner agencies and city staff in various departments. We did focus groups with various neighborhood associations, PBIDs, and business groups. And then we also had a community survey to get broader community feedback. Overall, most community members saw a potential benefit for digital kiosks within Sacramento, while they were also raising questions about feasibility, sustainability, and if there were other tools that would serve the community better. Um, in terms of features, when we asked the community what features they would most be interested in for kiosks, the ones on the left-hand side were the ones that were the most of interest to community members, and the ones on the right-hand side were the ones that were less interest to community members. In terms of concerns, these were the six main themes of concerns that we heard, maintenance and vandalism, um, duplicative technology, people wondered if cell phones would be used instead, advertisements, folks were understanding that advertisements could be used to pay for kiosks, but also felt that they could deter from a truly community-focused approach. Um, there were concerns about privacy and surveillance and data collection, um, with power consumption, concerns about connecting to an electrical source, and then for structural limitations, a kind of a comp competition for space in the public right-of-way with all of the things that we have there. Um, some outstanding questions from the community members was where these kiosks would be located. Um, we did not choose selections as part of the scope for this project, and so community members really wanted to know where these specifically would be installed. They wondered how they'd be used outside of downtown, interested in a pilot program, and wanting more input before those locations were selected. Also questions about costs, staff time, and how much it would cost the city to install these. I also wanted to know who would own these, manage the content, and like get more clarity on costs and revenue. Also want transparency in a selection process and any future agreements. So with the information from the community outreach and along with our best practices research, um, we drafted an ordinance and resolution. So currently, city code does not provide for digital kiosks. And so what the ordinance does is define digital kiosks and add them as a sign type allowed in the code. Also specifies that these are located on public property with an agreement through the city. And it also allows the city manager to set advertising standards. Paired with the ordinance is the resolution, so should this receive the necessary approvals, the project would move into an implementation phase, choosing locations and a vendor and a competitive procurement process. 
So what the resolution does is um, incorporate committee direction and findings to guide and streamline that future process. So included in the resolution are desired features and undesired features, what we heard during community outreach. Um, there's also other considerations clarifying that these, these can have advertisements, but that should be a subordinate role. Um, also should be multilingual, maintain accessibility, and reflect unique neighborhoods. Community members really shared that each neighborhood has different needs and making sure that these kiosks are responsive to that. It also places the responsibility of maintenance on the provider in response to concerns about vandalism and what other cities have done as seen in the best practices research. And then requires further outreach once locations are selected, once chosen one noticing people within 500 feet and having a community meeting so that there's more opportunity for the um, public to weigh in. So with that, staff is recommending committee pass a motion forwarding the ordinance and city council to consideration. And that concludes my presentation and I'm available for any questions, thank you. Thank you so much, Madam Clerk. Do we have any public comment on this item? Thank you, Chair, we have no public comment. Great, thank you. Um, we will pass it over to Vice Mayor, who I know has been eagerly awaiting this moment in time for many, many months. Years. Yeah. Just years. I think it's been six years. So first of all, I mean, and I know there's been some staff changes and new people have come in and, you know, so uh, entirely new council. I think a new mayor since this was put for forward. So uh, so all, all to say is this came about when our conversation about what can we do about revitalizing um, commercial corridors, like revitalizing places like Stockton Boulevard as one tool, okay, not the tool, but one tool, many others. And so first let me just thank staff for getting to this point. Um, and, uh, and I appreciate the ordinance and, and the work that's been done. Uh, my own point here, I think, um, you know, I think we, what, what came out of the survey is what we knew from the beginning. I, didn't think that it was warranted for us to, to go through this route, but I, I appreciate that we've gone through the exercise. I think we could have saved the city some money doing it, but, um, you know, uh, going again and uh, going back here, I think there's a, there's a lot of key important things here. One of the things that I'm glad was brought up again, and I think you may have mentioned this, uh, Chair, in our last conversation is particularly in corridors like Stockton Boulevard and a lot of our cities, that the multilingual aspect of this and the tool of it being able to provide information, um, it's not that you have, you can't access information on your phone. I mean, you can access information in different ways, but the point about this is that it, it's readily information at, at a point when you need it and it helps us guide and provide information um, where, where um, uh, that's not an infinite. I mean, sometimes the biggest problem about doing a search is that it's an infinite search, you know, but when you're able to have digital kiosks in an area, you're able to also help coordinate a message. Uh, I think the ordinance has done a good job. It does put a lot of onus on the city manager uh, and the staff, which I think it's um, uh, probably wouldn't be as comfortable, but we got to get started somewhere, and I think it helps us at least get going. So uh, it gives us the flexibility to pull back if, if, we don't, if we don't like how something is moving, but it also gives us the ability to be flexible as technology is, um, is advancing and moving forward. We already see some digital kiosks popping up. I don't know if they're permitted or not. You know, I don't think they are, but, uh, but they're being used a lot already by, by the, the, the electric charging infrastructure. And the sheer cost of being able to put the electric charging infrastructure, I mean, 
if we don't find other tools to be able to do that and 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 this is a way then I don't know how we'll, we'll be able to accomplish the amount of public also infrastructure. Uh, I know in, in certain communities where we do want to encourage this, it's also the areas where we have a lot of poor air quality. So this has been another one where these can be equipped with air quality monitors at a cheaper rate, at a fixed rate. So there's a lot of positive things to this. Um, well, the one that I know uh, uh, that I will say that I have heard from my, from my district that um, uh, could be, uh, and thank you for, again, I don't want this to be an end around to the sign ordinance. This is a secondary function. So I think the digital kiosks, the advertising piece is a secondary function. Um, as my colleague said, that sometimes we have to use advertisement to pay for things. We do it when we go uh, support a nonprofit. They get sponsors to pay for a, um, um, the program. And that happens because that's a, a way of doing it. But, it. but the fact that it's a secondary requirement, that's an important part of the language. Thank you for including that. The one uh, change, and I'll move the staff report, but make one change to the resolution, and that's making cameras permissive. Um, I have heard directly from business owners who are concerned about some of the breaking ends uh, on, in vehicles and in incidences where we've had sideshows in parking lots um, uh, that they want that type of activity um, and accessibility, but I want it to be controlled. So I want to figure, make sure that we look at that at cameras for purposes of, of security purposes, not so much uh, uh, you know, collecting data, personal information. I think that was important tools that you added in there, the guardrails about how to protect you know, uh, collecting data, personal information, but being able to use that for, for those purposes, I think, is an appropriate tool. So I'll leave that. I'll make a motion. And with that minor change to make cameras permissive, it still gives it within the purview of the city manager of, of what and when to use. So thank you. Uh, thank you, Vice Mayor. Um, I will chime in. Oh, sorry, Vice Chair. I just saw you go up. Because <laughs> um, I was actually going to make the opposite request. So um, I, we have a little banter here. Um, I'm very, I'm very concerned about privacy and surveillance with these, especially since they will be privately operated. Um, I really know. I want to make sure that people walk up and enter information. You know that there's standards in place for how the, that information is stored yeah. and not stored. And I am very, very anxious about. Um, having cameras available. I just think that since it's a private thing, um, that, that makes me itchy. And I just got to say that um, because I'm worried about, you know, how someone might use it. I'm worried about the security of their systems, how easy it might be for someone to hack in and get access to things that we might not want them. Is it just a camera or is it audio? And so I have a lot of... Um, <laughs> general concerns about that and so for me if we were going to include the ability for camera I would want a very specific privacy and surveillance policy to be attached to that and I don't know if that would delay this and so but that's my thing is I just want to make sure that since these are private entities who will be running and governing this that they have the proper measures in place to ensure that Joe Schmo can't just watch me outside of my house when I happen to live near one of these things. That would be sure. a big deal for me. Yeah, no, and we have those requirements already when it comes to cameras, say, on freeways. I worked on the, the when I was at Caltrans, on um, on making the harnesses for all the cameras and how those are oriented and what can, they can be done. Um, I have no I have no problem with a kind of policy of that. I don't want to delay this to come back, but yeah. I do want this, that if these are approved with the camera, much like the language has the authority to control okay. advertisement, um, that when when cameras are used, that there is uh, some kind of privacy surveillance policy. Yeah, that um, protects personal yeah, data. And, exactly. You know, 
ensures adequate security. Um, so with that, I would be happy to second your motion. Yeah. Um, and I do want to echo what the vice mayor said about alignment with electric vehicle charging. And that was actually what brought this onto my radar was our active transportation commissioners who were like, hey, cool, this could be a great way to get more like electric bike charging or electric scooter charging out in the community. Yeah. And so I would love to just make that an explicit part of whether it's an intention statement or somewhere in there so that it's super clear to the city manager that that is one of the intersections that I personally find most exciting um, to increase infrastructure for that. And um, yeah, so those are my two main comments. Uh, Vice Chair Jennings. I think it's in the resolution, correct? I don't yeah. think it was there. It's in the, I think, uh, not EV charging. Yeah. No, that would be um, located probably on a private property where I've seen them in the city so far and not subject to this ordinance. Well, okay. well I, I guess we were talking about the creation of yeah. new options specifically for e-bikes and other types of like if you had something on the sidewalk you could potentially attach so we just want to make sure that's not out of scope when the city manager is looking at applications for this understood okay so section 1c let's add a let's add a v8 um or a viii or we could do um yeah, so you know, we're just trying to make it explicit in the ordinance to council that electric vehicle charging infrastructure is one of the intersections yep. here. In addition to the point that if cameras are permitted, there's a privacy, surveillance, security, and data collection policy. Um, Vice Chair, go ahead. So I think you guys stole my thunder. I was going to uh, second the motion. Um, I was really going to um, support the camera situation because we find ourselves in the city of Sacramento um, needing more cameras in place to deal with the issues of security, um, not only for the individual, but for individuals who are involved with sideshows and, and different things that are going on, crimes that are going on. So having a camera there to be able to capture some of that is, it, it takes, it helps our ability to, to apprehend the person who is perpetrating the crimes and to be able to help the citizens to be able to get justice. So I just wanted to kind of understand the, the privacy surveillance security policy, and we should have that in all of our cameras that the city operates so that people feel like they're not, we're not stealing their information. But when we put the um, police observation devices into District 7 with the license plates readers, um, people were very concerned about this exact same thing. But when they then saw over time that we weren't after their personal information, but in fact, we help them to be able to apprehend criminals and stop crime in District 7 because of what we've done, it has now become a best practice. And so I see this leaning in that same way, and so I just wanted to kind of support if, in fact, we have the privacy surveillance security policy in there, then we should be okay and we should have everything we need um, with the kiosks and the security for our, our residents. So just in support of the motion. Appreciate that. Councilmember Kaplan. I, I just want to add a little bit of uh, ditto to, to make it clear um, because Councilmember Jennings, you stole a little bit of my comment um, because I can tell you many of our HOAs have installed some of the, the private license plate readers but have authorized uh, police the ability to get in. And I know specifically for District 1, um, it may be happening throughout the city, but our, our mailboxes are getting hit hard all the time. Somebody has a key. 
they're not getting broken in, somebody has a key and is getting into them. And because of those license plate readers, we were uh, the police were able to make arrest, which was really significant um, for my area. And I know there is state law regarding privacy and data privacy, so I am, um, I think it's a great thing to look at as we move forward with every single one of our contracts that's in alignment with state law requiring the privacy. Um, but like when a crime has occurred, giving the authority for our police department to access that information, I think will go a long way in even just mailbox that sideshow and everything else. Um, that's really important. And then just a, a little bit of a, a, a of a, Let's just say I wasn't fully um, happy with the outreach that was done um, and that uh, we needed to make sure that it wasn't a majority of just white individuals responding as to how they, they felt about uh, kiosks. And I also noticed that it um, does not look like HOAs were reached out to. You know, our neighborhood associations. Um, so I think our consultants could have kind of done a better job to, to look at the diversity of our city and get a diverse uh, feedback. Um, I think what Councilmember Guerra has been pushing and doing for a long time, I'm on board. But we also, as an aside, when we bring individuals and consultants on, um, we need to have that higher expectation that there is a wide breadth of, of feedback from individuals and communities that truly are reflective of our community. Great point, thank you very much. Um, any further, don't see any further comments. So we have a motion and a second with a little bit of, not too much additional <laughs> on this one uh, direction. All in favor, please say aye. Aye. Any opposed, abstention, that's unanimous. Thank you very much staff. Congratulations, Vice Mayor, for finally taking that taking that step. <laughs> All right, moving on to our final item, six, update on the audit of the Sacramento Community Police Review Commission. I see our auditor team here in the audience. Thank you for your patience. We will give this budget not it got canceled, so we can be here for three hours if we want to be, so let's roll. <laughs> just joking. <laughs> I don't think Sorry, I just got scowls from everybody up here. <laughs> so um, we're not actually going to take three hours, but I just want to make sure you know that, you know, we don't, we have a little bit of, we have the time to give this that it needs. So okay. thank you, Jorge, for your patience. It won't be too long. So, um, you know, uh, uh, whatever the committee is good with. So good afternoon, uh, Jorge Seguera, the city auditor. Today's report requires no action and is a review, uh, receive and file. Uh, the full audit of the Sacramento Community Police Review Commission was presented to the Budget and Audit Committee on November 30th, 2021, and was approved unanimously by the City Council at its February 22nd, uh, 2022 meeting. Our report included three findings and made 16 recommendations. At the May 16, 2023 City Council meeting, Mayor Steinberg commented on the consent calendar and asked that the City Auditor present to the Law and Legislation Committee regarding the potential staffing needs detailed in the audit report. As you know, in this report, many of the recommendations were directed to the City Council as they pertain to adjustments to the City Code. This is our first opportunity to present this issue at the committee level to facilitate a discussion on a couple of the recommendations. As the full report is quite dense, we are providing an abbreviated presentation that focuses on some of the aspects covered in finding one and finding two. This will not be a full presentation of the report and the status of the recommendations. Uh, 
If there is interest in hearing the full report or other portions of the report, we would be happy to return with additional updates on the findings and recommendations. We would also like to note that we were invited to present the audit in its entirety to the Police Commission on October 9th, and we have accepted that invitation. For the rest of the presentation, Kevin Christensen, Principal Fiscal Policy Analyst in my office, will be walking us through the remaining of the, ten, the remainder of the 10 slides. All right, thank you. All right, good afternoon, committee members. Uh, Kevin Christensen, Principal Fiscal Policy Analyst for the Office of the City Auditor. Um, so we'll jump right into the, for the field work of this project, we reviewed policies and procedures for 45 different civilian oversight law enforcement agencies. We found that there are currently about 160 active entities across the country. And I think more importantly, um, in terms of what we're trying to do here, what we found is that no two entities are alike. These are all set up different based on the community needs. Um, so for, the research, for our research, we relied heavily on the work of the National Association of Civilian Oversight of Law Enforcement. Um, we'll call this NACOL for the remainder of the presentation. And we found that the growth of the civilian oversight of law enforcement agency has yielded many different structures and approaches. Right, the first is the review focus model, which provides community members with an opportunity to review misconduct complaint investigations. The second are investigation focus models, which employ professionally trained investigative staff to conduct investigations of allegations of misconduct. And third, uh, the monitoring and auditing focus models, which uh, promotes broad organizational change by addressing systematic issues. And finally, what we have here in the city of Sacramento uh, is a hybrid system where multiple agencies may perform different oversight and advisory roles. So here for the city of Sacramento, we have OPSA, which has the authority to conduct investigations related to citizen complaints. OPSA tracks and monitors high profile or serious complaint cases, reviews completed investigations, and advises on any deficient investigations. The police commission reviews police policies and procedures in an advisory capacity. And most recently, we've seen the creation of the Office of Inspector General, which has full independence and authority to investigate officer-involved shootings and use of force incidents. So these agencies kind of form the comprehensive uh, city's oversight structure uh, so our report also provides some background on the powers and duties of the police commission, right? So first, uh, the commission's responsibilities include making recommendations regarding police policy, procedures, and best practices. This includes over community relations, hiring, and training best practices. The, commissions are all, the commission is also charged with reviewing quarterly reports from OPSA relating to the number, kind, and status of all citizen complaints filed against SPD. The purpose here is to try to identify trends and make recommendations based on that. And finally, the commission is tasked with, at least annually, reporting and making recommendations to the mayor and city council. So we wanted to note that after the issuance of this audit, a series of legislative changes uh, designed to streamline the operations of the boards and commissions have taken place. Um, one change includes a requirement that these boards, commissions, and committees propose 
propose a work plan for the coming year. So this brings us to the first finding, uh, that the lack of clarity in defined roles and responsibilities for the commission has led to confusion and frustration. The finding covers opportunities to improve the city code language that establishes the commission. So we found that the city code does not comprehensively define the authorities of the commission and stakeholder agencies, including SPD and OPSA. You know, in other words, how these agencies that all make up the city's oversight framework all work together. Um, so we noted three examples of how this lack of clarity or how the lack of clarity uh, issues have manifested. So first with staffing, um, the commission is currently provided administrative support for staging meetings. The city code states that OPSA is to provide staff support but provides no definition of what staff support uh, encompasses, whether the commission has the authority to direct or request staff support. Second is access to information. A city code is silent on the breadth and extent of information the commission is entitled to. And third, the city code lacks specificity on the commission's duty to review aggregated citizen complaint data from OPSA. Um, in other words, does the commission have access to more than what OPSA has issued to the public? And these are some of the issues that have resulted in confusion and frustration about what the commission has the authority to do. So our first recommendation here was that the city should provide clarity on the roles and purposes, mission, and authorities of the commission and memorialize that in the city code. We believe that better defining some of the roles and responsibilities of the city's oversight agencies and establishing clear lines of communications and responsibilities between the three could help alleviate some of the confusion. In terms of implementation, as we discussed earlier, this is the first opportunity our office has had to bring this recommendation to commission for a discussion. So the second finding we have was that the commission requires resources and investment from the city to effectively achieve its objectives. So our second finding focuses more on the resources needed by the commission to, to fulfill its purposes, missions, and duties. This section of the report included seven sub-findings and made recommendations for the purpose of this discussion. We'll focus on the first sub-finding pertaining to staffing. That sub-finding states, the city does not provide sufficient staff support and or funding to allow the Sacramento Police Review Commission to fulfill its purpose and duties, which has resulted in tension between the commission, OPSA, and the police department. So to provide some context, according to NACOL, uh, providing funding and staffing must be sufficient to meet the mission, purposes, and duties of the agency. That's how the, that, the language of the first finding and this first finding it kind of intersect. Um, NACL finds that support for civilian oversight should include a sustained commitment to provide adequate resources to retain experienced professional staff, perform outreach, communicate with the police staff and stakeholders, and uh, and analyze law enforcement patterns. So when the commission was created, as we stated earlier, the, staff, the staffing component was housed in OPSA, which was provided in, SD, in uh, uh, FTE for this purpose. OPSA's role in the provision of staff support included, in part, administrative support for staging the public meetings, and OPSA also served as an intermediary between the commission and the police department. However, a series of disagreements between the police department and the commission put OPSA in the role of middle person, kind of carrying messages back and forth in terms of data requests, what the, what the commission has access to, and that kind of thing. Um, OPSA and the commission have since agreed that OPSA in, serving in this role may create the perception that its independence is compromised, which is um, improper. So our recommendation for this sub-finding stated 
that the city council should determine the staffing needs and responsibilities and funding for the police commission. The council should memorialize the specific role of the staff provided, the funding source, and what officer department that will house this position through resolution or uh, changes to the city code. So why we're here, right, is um, where are we with this recommendation? So this recommendation as of 2023 was considered started. In assessing the implementation status of the recommendation, we considered the following. First is that OPS is no longer providing administrative or functional support to the commission. Second is that administrative staffing is currently being provided by the city clerk's office to ensure compliance with California open meeting laws. So this leads us to that the commission at this point is receiving little, if any, functional support for the city to carry out its missions and purposes. So as is customary, the city auditor's office will continue to follow up with the mayor and council on the status of the recommendations made in this report every six months during our semi-annual recommendation follow-up process. This concludes the presentation and we are available for questions should you have any. All right, thank you very much for that presentation, Kevin, and all the work that you all did on this. Madam um, Clerk, do we have any public commenters on this item? I know I see the um, Vice Chair of the Police Review Commission. Um, I do want to give him extra time if there's no objection, because I do understand there's a letter on behalf of the commission that was submitted a little late that he just wants to make sure is read into the record. So um, I don't hear any objection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll, um, all right, Keon, start us off here, and then we'll go to the next public commenter. Thank you, Chair, and uh, Readings Law and Legislation Committee. My name is Keon Bliss. I'm the Vice Chair of the Sacramento Community Police Review Commission. And uh, this morning, we sent uh, you all a letter of comment in support of the city auditor's uh, finding uh, as it conducted the audit of our uh, commission. Dear council members, as the Chair and Vice Chair of the Sacramento Community Police Review Commission, we write to support the city auditor's recent findings and ask that the Law and Legislation Committee make appropriate recommendations to city council to ensure the SCPRC has a clear outline of its role and duties, the investment of resources it needs to carry them out, and a clear pathway for its recommendations to be heard. City Code Section 2.110 specifies that the SCPRC was created for the following purposes. Providing community participation in reviewing and recommending police department policies, practices, and procedures, and two, monitoring the implementation, evaluation, and sustainability of each city policing initiatives and programs. However, the SCPRC has long lacked the adequate resources, including dedicated staff, to carry out these duties. For example, at three recent public forums conducted to gather input about the police department's use of military equipment, community members complained about inadequate notice surrounding the, the events, criticized the lack of resources to educate and explain policy considerations in layperson's terms, and expressed mistrust that their participation and input would be seriously taken into account by the city. Each of these frustrations are understandable, but impossible to meaningfully address without a budget and a staff position for SEPRC to carry out its mission. The city auditor found almost two years ago that an absence of clear roles and responsibilities had led to confusion, frustration, and lack of agreement between the SCPRC, the Sacramento Police Department, and the Office of Public Safety Accountability. In response to the November 2021 audit, the SCPRC issued 12 recommendations almost three years ago without uh, advising the city council to amend city code to clarify its role, invest in staff support, and strengthen the recommendation process, which we have sent to all of you. 
Last year, when the city made changes to Chapter 2.40.210, Governing Boards and Commissions, one of the recommendations the SEPRC put forward to create standardized process provided the following draft language. Whenever a board, committee, or commission submits policy recommendations to the City Council, these recommendations shall be agendized first for consideration by either the Budget Committee and or the Law and Legislation Committee within 90 days of submission. The board, committee, or commission shall be invited to present a representative to present these recommendations. Unfortunately, these changes were not made. Confusion and frustration have only grown in the time since, while nothing material has shifted. There remain 146 out of 147 recommendations produced by the SCPRC since 2018, and a clear outline process on how to bring these recommendations forward to City Council has yet to be developed or explained to the SCPRC. This status quo severely hinders the SCPRC's effectiveness and erodes the community's trust in both the SPD and the City Council. In proposing the implementation of the auditor's recommendations, the Law and Legislation Committee has an opportunity to strengthen the effectiveness of the SEPRC and increase its public confidence in our city's governance. We urge you as its chair and vice chair to undertake this challenge in mutual service to our Sacramento community. Sincerely, Graciela Castillo-Krings, the chair of the Sacramento Community Police Review Commission, and Keon Bliss, vice chair. That was impressive timekeeping there. Thank you, Keon. We'll go on to our next public commenter and then we'll start discussion. Our last public comment is from Chief Bay. Hi, good afternoon. So, um, the Police Review Board apparently does not get enough support. But what's more disturbing is that your Sacramento Police Department continues to racially profile black Sacramento business owners. On Thursday, September 29th, McPhail decided to not only approach and confiscate an ID, but the person that he had problems with before citation in your district that came and did public comment over and over again concerning that he's in fear for his life because of the approach and the threat of criminal charges keep being brought upon this person. But when he approaches me and sees me with this person and then confiscates my ID, Ms. Venezuela, can you imagine walking around with the ID? You don't have to stay Lieutenant Governor. That's my title. There's a reason why Lieutenant Governor is in front of that, because the constituents are tired of the body of governance over them not listening. How do I, who never committed a crime, get racially profiled banking while black in a downtown Sacramento bank? And when we have submitted complaints and even ask your sergeant, who is his boss? And he cannot even respond, saying the city of Sacramento, who pays them $228 million a year, an all-time record high. Ms. Kaplan, you don't have to face half of the stuff we go through in our neighborhood. But what we want is that when we do public comments, submit reports, that something be done. At the end of the day, that I don't see color nonsense is not going to fly when your unknowledgeable Sacramento PD is in uniform patrolling our neighborhood, dumb as a, as a, a bucket of bricks. Unacceptable. I ask you to 
Thank you for your comment. Your time is complete. Thank you for your yeah. time. If we could, um, my chief of staff is hanging out in the back room. I'd love some more information about the incident that happened to you. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. Um, I am, thank you everybody for coming to make comment. Um, I have been conferring with our mayor who um, asked that this item come to Law and Ledge to get a better idea of some of the thoughts that he wants us to consider. And one of the things that he feels very important um, and that I would agree is that he wants to propose a new staff position um, that would be under the mayor and council but report to the police commission. Um, that is evidenced today by the fact that I noted that there's like, I mean, Jorge, you're you're an auditor, you don't write ordinances, there's no staff here right now <laughs> for the city. Uh, I know CPD in the back, but um, you know, I think that the case for staff support um, has been made quite clear and it's something that the mayor, if one thing on this long list of changes feels is incredibly important and would like to submit to the committee for consideration. Um, I do know we talked a lot about OPSA's capacity at recent meetings, and I'm glad that OPSA is getting additional staff support. I think that you know we recognize the important role they play, and a reason why I'm very interested in a staff position is that it is very important to me that OPSA maintain independence from the police department. It's not their job to report to the community what the police is doing. It's their job to hold the community responsible um, for uh, the police department responsible in terms of independent oversight. So that is one thing the mayor has asked that we bring forward and that I concur with and so I put on the table. Um, additional points that I would like us to consider because this is just a discussion item. I think an, a clearer ordinance for the police commission is clearly needed. Um, when you look at the language that's currently in our code, it is very broad um, and I appreciate why that has drawn great um, consternation on all sides of this issue, both police saying where do we draw the lines on information that's being requested of us and the commission saying where are the lines for what we're supposed to be doing here. Um, so I would like to also further propose in addition to the mayor's request a couple of things for us to consider and to hear back on. One is obviously that the police department be required to consult with the commission on any policy or order changes unless it's determined to be an urgent change. And in that case, they would come to the next commission meeting to talk about the change that was made. I would like to require that PD attend the meetings to report on activities since the last meeting and to answer any questions the commission has about those activities. It's already in the code that OPSA shall provide their quarterly report to the commission, but I would like to make clear that I think they should be required to attend the meetings as well um, as the police department. And that they, um, I want to note that the current code already says that they should advise and make recommendations at least annually, and I emphasize at least annually to the city council. I would like to establish a timeline of um, a response, a an agendized item at the city council within three months of that submission. Um, and I know there will be lots of conversation about that, but that is something that I think is important for us to establish. Um, I concur with the recommendation around requiring training and appreciate the police department's recommendation that that training be developed in partnership between the police, the clerk, the city attorney, and OPSA um, for new commissioners um, and for commissioners. And I think that would be a great addition to the work of the commission and hopefully something that we can work to be feasible because obviously you can't go through full academy training because you're volunteers and that would be a lot. 
And then I think finally, um, we're already updating and uh, implementing the annual report through PMPE, but I do think that the website, we have raised this a few times with the need for the um, commission's website to include status updates on their recommendations. I think that's really important, 140, I even lose track since you said it right now. I know, I'm like, I, I, I lose track of how many are there. And this is not just about, um, I think there's been a lot of work that's been done. And part of what really frustrates me is I see and I hear reports from PD saying, oh yeah, we're already doing that, we're already doing that. And I would love for that to be memorialized somewhere that they said, oh yeah, we took this advice of the LGBT subcommittee that was formed and we implemented this policy around transgender name use. And, and that was the sort of thing that I think would really engender a lot of trust with the public that the process is, is working. Um, so those are my recommendations. The mayor is talking about staff. I am talking about the department being required to consult and attend um, the commission meetings, OPSA to be required to attend, and that there be a timeline for recommendations and a requirement for training. And that's just my general take. So now I will pitch it, and thank you for indulging me, colleagues, since the mayor um, and I talked a lot yesterday, um, so I don't have anything super written down, and apologize for that, but um, would love to hear thoughts from the committee. And um, I will say that our trustee staff person, Consuelo, is taking studious notes as the <laughs> de facto staff of this item for moving forward, and we will work together to bring something back to this committee um, based on today's discussion. So we'll start now with um, Councilmember Kaplan. Thank you, Chair. Just want to, um, this is a report and receive, so we actually can't take action, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so we're just discussing. You're, you're, you're talking about what you and the mayor may propose through the legislative process that's set up in our council rules for making changes. Sure, whatever you're comfortable with. I just think it's important when we talk about these things, we provide consistency. Um, I mean, I think the full council directed this come to law and ledge, though, for recommendations. So, I mean, we could. I don't recall that. I, I could be wrong. I, I, I don't. I don't recall that. I, I just want to. I think it's it's important for <laughs> process and procedure um, that, as chair of PNPE, uh, I have already requested, and I'm working with Mendy to bring back each one of our boards and commissions to discuss their their purpose and duties to see if that it is relevant, uh, since we are kind of the the rules uh, process that that process has already started for every rule and commission. Um, I do agree that we have to figure out because as drafted, OPSA was supposed to be staff uh, of the Police Review Commission and there is a conflict. So I think that does need to uh, be created. And then as to uh, the Police Review Commission and then the process for follow-up, I think it's really important we provide consistency for every board and commission. While the Police Review Commission does something very important, so does each one of our boards and commissions. And so I don't believe in creating a separate process for one board versus another. Um, and that's why through PNPE, we did create a process uh, through the annual report and other Others, as well as a process that at any point a council member can propose something uh, and submit it to the clerk and the mayor if they'd like to see changes. So I don't want to create a hodgepodge. I'd like to address these through the, the normal process uh, as was created where some of this is rightfully in the jurisdiction of PMPE. Um, some, if there's a staff member, should go through budget before it comes to city council. Um, and, and those other items. So those are just my two cents, but I'd like to stay within the rules and procedures as already drafted uh, within the city council. Great, thank you for that feedback, Vice Chair Jennings. 
I'm sorry. Um, I want to thank the auditor on the, this report. Um, I find it um, very enlightening as far as um, what your recommendations are. Um, I would imagine that the same report is given to the Police Review Commission. And they've had an opportunity to review it as well. Uh, as the auditor mentioned, they're agendized for next week, but okay. I do believe the chair and vice chair conferred at, within the Brown Act to submit the letter that we Good. heard today. Good. And there was a letter, I think, submitted with the original audit from the prior chair, Mario Guerrero, that's attached in the and it, their letter, pretty much almost verbatim, reflects Mario's. Perfect. And, and if I'm not mistaken, I believe we had presented the report to the uh, uh, police commission before. And so this is just, you know, obviously presenting the information again and providing an update on some of the information. So one of the things that caught my attention, a lot of things caught my attention, but one in particular, um, the lack of staffing report um, and the tension and lack of trust that comes from lack of staffing report. Um, I would imagine that the lack of resources, the lack of staffing report, um, the lack of clearly defined roles, uh, everything that's in the findings equals out to lack of trust. And so at some point in time, I think it's important for the city council and the police review commission to have a joint meeting or a joint workshop and to be able to work out these things so that we stop working within the government process this committee, this commission, this body of legislative um, council members talking in our own separate meetings and we never talk to each other because that doesn't do anything to build trust. So in my opinion, based on where we've been over the last few years, we need to create a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal, and we need to bring everybody together in the same room where we can work these things out collectively. We can set up subgroups of police review commission members and city council members, and we can do what we do in workshops is we come up with ideas and solutions of how do we create trust? How do we work together? And that way it's just not one idea that, that bumps another idea. Who says that my idea is better than your idea? Or that, you know, so I'm just saying, I think we need to do that. At this point in time, and having listened to the, the same things come up over and over again, if we really are going to make these two bo this body work and build the trust that it's gonna take for us to be able to work together, we need to develop relationships. And that means we need to come together as opposed to being separate. So that would be my recommendation um, to this body. Thank you, Mr. Vice Chair. I think that's an excellent recommendation. Um, I'm a big fan of just get everybody in a room and have the discussion. So Make sure you I have some food there. in the audience expressing support as well. So <laughs> Make sure you have some food there. Oh, we always do. Yeah, food, yeah. Nice, comfortable space. All right, thank you for that suggestion. I think that's a really well thought and measured way to move forward given the depth and breadth of what we're dealing with. Um, Vice Mayor? Yeah, um, you know, the only thing I have really to add is, is one, whether, whether it's this commission or other commissions, they need, we do, they need to be staffed appropriately. I mean, that, 
It just, you have folks who are volunteering their time, uh, whether it's the URAC or Planning Commission, uh, they need to have the resources to do the, the work that they've, uh, they've uh, agreed to do uh, on behalf of uh, their appointee in the body. So, um, and, and to that effect, I, I do recall that at our last meeting, the city manager, at least in the conversation, was that in you know, that staffing through the appropriation that we did for both PD and OPSA would would cover some of that. Um, maybe I misunderstood it, but I thought that was already in place. And uh, and then second, I, th I, th I th my recollection is that that uh, through that conversation. Uh, the city manager already indicated the department will have someone there to to speak on behalf of the department from the department. So, um, unless I'm recalling that meeting already, I mean, it, it seems that that's the only thing to I think highlight is I think we've had that conversation, um, and uh, and we should at least execute what we've already agreed to. So, and leave it at that. I appreciate that. Yeah, I had. Um some folks sent me a lot of the historical documents of this discussion since Councilmember Carr originally proposed the creation of the police commission um, and just all the different iterations that it's had over budget appropriations and back, you know, contract negotiations with OPSA directors. And it does seem like, I think in general, with all good things after, I mean, gosh, 2015, the commission was established, 2016. Um, yeah, yeah, it's like there's there's a real opportunity maybe to step back because what I'm hearing loud and clear, not just from my commissioner, but from several commissioners um, who've talked to me at different events is that it is not working. And I think the city auditor's report puts a very fine point on it is not working. Um, not that I think anybody's intentionally necessarily doing anything wrong. I just think it's a time for us to step back and figure out times have changed, the structure has changed, how do we make this work? So really love the idea, Vice Chair, of doing a joint meeting. We can follow up with the mayor's office about setting that up here following today. And that would be wonderful. That's the only thing I would add. Oh, yeah, The only, only thing I would add to that is, because we're using the term meeting, and I want to use the term workshop. Yes, workshop. Because I want to make sure that it is not a meeting, but it's an opportunity for us to be able to work together to commonly serve our issues yes. that we have. Um, but it has to be in the form of a workshop because that way it takes, we give it the amount of time it takes to be able to work through these issues. I think that's excellent. All right. So that is it for our agenda. This is a special meeting, so there's no off agenda comments unless anybody has any further business for the committee. We are adjourned. Thank you. Thank you.